So I'm staring at my phone and like moving into it intently when I forget the microphone's hanging right by my head. <laughs> well, it's it's cool, man, because um, Apple has factored all of that in, and they they did they did a good job. No, they're insane. Absolutely, it's a fucking crazy company. It really is. Okay, are you, do you want to start this? Um, let's do it. Okay. And we've been recording. <laughs> Beautiful. Okay. I'm kidding. It's only been recording for like 30 seconds. That's so whatever. But hello, hello, everyone. And uh, this, I, I, uh, this is like the most talk to the quote-unquote audience part that will happen. Then everything else will just be us kind of talking. You know what I mean? Okay. But, uh, so yeah, welcome everybody to the Isaiah Cooper podcast. I guess. Uh, yeah. And this is, uh, it's been a long time, but who gives a shit? And uh, I have on this episode a very funny man. And we've been doing an open mic together. And he is, uh, that's how I met him, was at this this open mic. Very funny man. And his, his name is Greg McInnes. Good afternoon. Thank you, Mr. Cooper. Dude. Yeah. Hell yeah. <laughs> I can get down with Mr. Cooper. <laughs> So first, let's um, Greg, who 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 is who is Greg? Yeah, so uh, I am, as you mentioned, we met at open mics. I have been uh, closing in on the midlife crisis. Wife and kids decided I wanted to uh, try something out on a lark. I did, which I, I highly recommend for anyone that may want to become an open micer or try it, because there's a million people out there that say. I feel really funny at this barbecue. Can I take it any further? Like, my aunt really laughs. She really thinks I'm funny, but I don't know. Put your money where the mouth is. Feeling froggy. Take a leap. At McCurdy's. You know that? You know about that thing at McCurdy's? The class? You must have heard of it with all the different guys that are around. Yeah, so there's a class in, in Sarasota, yeah. Yes. Uh, McCurdy's Comedy Theater in Sarasota. They have a, this, a class. It's a free ad for the class. I'll tell you, the actual work in it is, is nominal. There's nothing there. But what it will do... Is you lay out, I want to say it's 200 bucks. You go to a couple of four-hour things. The whole time you're sitting there, you'll be going, I can't believe I'm doing this. They're telling me that I will be up on stage on Thursday. So you four hours on a Saturday afternoon, four hours on a Sunday afternoon. Monday night, after you get out of work, it's geared towards, you know, like I said, that guy who's really funny around the water cooler and wants to shell out 200 bucks. And uh, that Monday night, you go do a dress rehearsal in the big stage at McCurdy's, which is nice. And I'll, I'll tell you that. Get into that in more detail in a moment. That is a really nice room. It's a beautiful room. Right? As you know, as an open micer, we get shitty rooms. We get four people in front of us. You're in the back of a bar competing with some drunk broad, if you're lucky. If not, it's just you and Isaiah. That's right. (laughs) And uh, when you do this thing, the two big benefits, and this is why I always push it on people and say, you should try it if you want to do it. Even guys that have been doing open mics for a few months could have fun with this because A, there's an A and a B here. A, it'll make you do it. It'll get you to the point where... You are going to have to shit or get off the pot. The show is on Thursday. <laughs> they, they make money. They sell like $10 tickets. And that room holds, I want to say, close to 300 people. Those comedy clubs are always so crazy how the actual capacity actually, you know, the, when you walk into the room, you're like, it's big, but I don't know, 150 people. They're like, nope, 285. It's, yeah, it's bananas how many right? people can actually fit in those places. It's, amazing. It's, it's that cheesy seating configuration where you're like, you're sitting either across from your date or I guess like behind your date or yeah. it's, it's kind of weird seating, but I guess that's the magic of 
getting a million people in the little tiny space. But it'll make you get up and do it. And number two, uh, what was number two? It, you'll be doing stand-up in front of a ginormous crowd. And if you decide you want to go into the world of open mic, you will realize it will be you, – you'll have to, like, break it before you're going to get anywhere near that type of audience because 280 people laughing is, is a beautiful thing. You know, you got the spotlight. You get the whole it's, thing. it's almost like they just give you, like, the best there is. Like right off the bat, yeah, you know, like they just give you the purest, uncut heroin, and then the rest of the time you're just scrounging around on the fucking streets. Well, so you know, the funny thing is, getting back to when I just was doing this as a lark, I just wanted to try it. I said, "Hey, I can get up there and try it." I didn't even think about the open mic world. I didn't even know. Honestly, I'm going to be honest here. I, I suppose I knew of the concept of open mics, but I never considered something in a little place like Sarasota. Now I realize. They're everywhere. As long as you have a gas station and a stoplight in the town, mm-hmm. there's nine guys four nights a week trying to do the comedy. Trying to tell jokes somewhere, man. Which is great because it, it opened my eyes and I said, you know what? I do want to try this. And I slowly waded into it. Uh, you know, all the comedy clubs will obviously have an open mic, but bars and all that stuff, I mean, whatever. I, I didn't realize how many there were. And slowly I got into it. And I, I think the reason why is after I did my set at the show, which went really well. They give you, you can buy a little DVD or you find the kid in the class that bought a DVD and get his pirated <laughs> copy. Hell yeah. Not, not that I would do that or condone internet piracy, of course. No, but, no, never. Um, but uh, it actually, the dude that did it was so apathetic. He was a real pain in the ass to get it. It was the first, <laughs> time, it was the first time any of us had ever done this, right? It's all everyone's first time. And of the 20 people that did it, I bet you 15 people are just happy to have done it that one time and had no interest. And there was... There was me, there was uh, this girl, Kirsten, that did it for like three or four months. She wanted to continue with the open mic. She went up a couple more times. Um, and this kid, Mick Holt, you know Mick Holt? You might have seen him around. He does the cock and bull and a few others. He was in the class with me. And this guy, my name is Greg McGinnis, M-C-I-N-N-E-S. There was this older guy from Alabama whose name was Richard McGinnis. <laughs> with totally different spelling, but of course, it, it, that was really funny. And he did it. He, he stuck with it for an extended period. I think he might be done. I mean, if he's listening to this, I thought you were very funny. I was very constructive with the criticism, and I think he'd keep doing it if you want. But I feel like he maybe just kind of said he's done with it. He, he just got sick of it. But, the um, you know, I, I guess I've been into the open mic scene now for about a year. I try and get up. You know, I mean, I, honestly, I, I try and get up like five or six times a month. Now that we've got this growler show, which I love, and we'll definitely talk about that more. I just – I the – atmosphere there is perfect for me to kind of stretch my legs in a way that I cannot do when you're at the comedy club, when you're actually in front of like 30 people or at a venue that's got, you know, that's got some, some clout behind it. You know, you don't want to go up and, and totally fall flat because all the other comics are watching more than anything else. There's really not anyone but the other comics. Mm-hmm. Exactly. And, um, and at Growlers, even when they're, and, and honestly, at Growlers, we've had like a host of other guys come in. I, there's been a, you know, three, four, five, six guys Angel shows up quite a bit, and, and Blake, obviously. But then, you know, I mean, if you think about it, there's been like five or six other guys that have popped in. And as it, as it continues to, uh, you know, live on, we'll, we'll, there'll be times when we'll have five or six, I bet. Oh, yeah, dude. It's all you – know? the, the, there's something to be said about consistency with any of this kind of stuff. And consistency, consistency with just doing open mics, with running your own, and trying to get people to, to kind of – start going to it and all kinds of things. So yeah, just, we just got to keep doing it over and over and over. And then that's it. I, you know, I, I honestly, I don't know what, it, what the draw was originally. I knew when you, 
when I first said, um, when I first saw that you were doing it, I said, oh, I definitely want to do an open mic with that guy because I remember you. This is a little Greg and Isaiah history. Hey, this yeah. is like this is like six or eight months ago, maybe. I want to say, well, you you are are you really a snowbird right now? Do you go back up north for the wintertime? I mean, for the summertime? Not so much. Well, not necessarily. You have in the last couple just, of years. No, oh, not necessarily. Um, uh, uh, just up north, ju- I, I end up just going out and like kind of traveling around or doing something. Oh, you just leave Sarasota for the summer at some yeah. point. Okay. Yeah. So I, I feel like, like I said, I did this uh, the showcase thing back in with McCurdy's in November last year, like right after Thanksgiving or right before Thanksgiving, I think, actually. And uh, I didn't really start doing open mics until like January. You know, the holidays and all that. I got a wife and kids. And, uh, I got, well, I've been married for uh, 12 years, and I got a 10-year-old boy and a 7-year-old boy. Oh, yeah. You know what? That's funny because I wrote down... Uh, having kids, and then I wrote down type, age, quantity. <laughs> there you go. I think I touched yeah, I got the two boys. <laughs> <laughs> and, and you know, and it's uh, and that that obviously in the context of the open mic thing, it makes it um, a more of a challenge to find those windows. They're tighter. There's more. There's more stuff that blocks me from going into it over. But yeah. uh, you know, I, I think with anything, it's like I, I, this is the thing I like to say about people, but I think it applies to almost everything. Like, everyone is 100% of a person. You know, you look at, like, a, I don't know, a guy that's, like, a toll taker. I don't want to step on people's toes here because I hate to be that guy that's, like, look at that guy. That, I can't even imagine that guy has any interior life. He works at a toll booth or he works at a 7-Eleven. I imagine him there and then just go laying in a cot in an empty room. <laughs> and then wait It's not even a poster because he has no outside interest. It's just bare walls and he comes back to 7-Elevens. <laughs> but, you know, everyone's got... 24 hours of their day and they've all been living to the point where they're at right now so when i when i when i say oh it's kind of hard with a wife and kids man it's probably hard to be 23 and fighting alcohol issues and trying to get up there and 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 having all the issues that come whatever i don't care if you're 23 55 12 whatever it is you got well i don't know 12 maybe not but once you get to adulthood (laughs) you right you got a host of issues and they're just there oh yeah like and if you as soon as you lose one another one comes in because Everything is a hundred percent. Like if you, it's all relative. So like it's like I've got four problems right now. One is I'm bleeding, where I'm gonna, you know, I'm gonna die bleeding because my liver was shot. And then I also have to, you this know, is, I, got a lot of laundry to, I got a lot of laundry to fold. No, I'm just saying, you know, hypothetically. Oh. Here's, just <laughs> here's my my problems list. You know, right. I'm, I'm I'm bleeding profusely through my liver. I got a lot of laundry to fill up, and I got to put gas in my car so I don't have to wait at the gas station before I go to work. Like. You know, it's like, really? No, you have one problem at that point. When you have that massive problem, and that's you don't want to wait in line at the gas station in the morning. No, you don't want to deal with the bleeding thing, right? That's going to kill you. Right. Once you get that solved, though, it's not like, okay, I only have two problems now, and they're both super minor. You're going to be like, okay, now my problem docket is still full. Mm-hmm. I'm not bleeding profusely anymore, but my problem docket still now is this laundry situation and or whatever, you know, and we know that most people, most of us fill up that problem docket, not with actual things, but with internal little battles. Right. I'm, I'm sure you've got your own. I wonder if you uh, could come up with something right now, something that you have made up for yourself, a little Isaiah obstacle. Maybe not. <laughs> Maybe I'm putting you on the spot. Like, for example, how about this? Things, you know, comparative things, like, uh, right, right, yeah. I wish I wasn't so fat. Is that really a problem? I don't know. I mean, when I look at someone who's really fat, I go... I'm, I'm doing okay. When I look at most other people, I'm like, yeah, you're kind of fat. But I yeah. could just easily find my, uh, you know, my my uh, my counter with that. Just go find a bunch of heavy people and hang out, and I could totally solve that problem. 
But I don't. You just sit there and you fester on and you eat junk and you say, oh, my God, I'm fat. What is the deal with it? It's a problem I'm making up in my head. That's how you feel your problem. Yeah, it up. If we I was all... in a boat taking on water, that becomes immediately the only problem I have for that right. time until – that's where I was going with that. And it's hard for anyone to do open mics. It is. It's really hard for anyone to do open mics. Like you said, it's all relative. Everyone has their own stuff going on. And, uh, yeah, so, so everyone's working around. Again, I, I love the way you put that, like a 24 – there's still 24-hour hours in that toll booth dude's life, you know, not just that toll booth. He goes out and he does other things. He has friends, family, everything he's done. Yeah, fuck yeah. He might be doing stand-up too. He might be. You never – yeah, I mean – that would probably end you up in a toll booth because you don't put as much time into, you know, managing other stuff. Right. Right. If you're six, if you really, you see all these different guys on the open mic trail, right? You go to the, oh, hold on. I'm totally sidetracking us. I just wanted to say, going back to the old Isaiah story, this is, this is from, I feel like in the springtime, <laughs> <laughs> that was like from five minutes ago. If this is in the springtime. You went up at McCurdy's. I don't know if I was up or if I was just going to the shows because I, immediately once this curtain got peeled back to me, I was like, this is unbelievable. I can't even believe all these people are doing this. And there was probably like, I, I signed up to go to a show and it was like six shows away or something. It was, it was a really heavy period. That's why I think, again, it was like the spring when all the sp snowbirds are down here, that backlog can get really big on, at McCurdy's. Oh, yeah. so, but I went to like three or four shows in a row and each one was building to when I was going to go. And... It was like the fourth one. I had seen all these guys, and I was like, all right, that guy's kind of fun. I, I'm like one of those guys. I always try and see the positive thing or always try and see people's perspective because going back to what I said there earlier, it just people don't just do stuff for no reason. So why, why would that guy do that thing that looks totally self-defeating or totally you know, t terrible? Why would that guy go up if he's not? Yeah, it's hard, it's hard as, a, as somebody who's like a comedian to not be hypercritical. Yeah, it's really hard to just let it go and just listen to it. Yeah, yeah, but you know what? But in, in the beginning, in this period that I'm talking about, it wasn't as hard for me because I was just learning the whole thing. I was like, "Holy shit, what am I going to do? Uh, let me just listen to all these guys." And so it was the show that I finally got up, and this this dude came up that was dressed like he had this uh, Where's Waldo outfit on. <laughs> that was just it was very funny. I was like, "All right, who's this guy?" I, you were hard to age because I said, uh, "He's up here, so you seem a little bit older just because of the." You know, the wherewithal it takes. Even if an 18-year-old kid gets up, you're thinking he's got to be like at least 20, 22, right? He's got some presence. Yeah. Or at least presence of mind is enough to go up there. And you seemed very comfortable. You went right up. You had like, I can't remember uh, all the jokes, but there were a couple bagel-related like one-liners. They were like maybe like puns or like, not necessarily puns, but like good turn of phrase specifically associated with bread or bagels or like that topic. And I was like, that is really funny. Look at this guy. He's young. He's up there. You had good presence. Like you were not, <laughs> you were not um, alienated in the process of being the one person with all the attention. So I, that stood out to me. And then, you know, three or four months later is when you started the growlers thing. And I was like, yes, you know what? This type, this, this guy. And I think I had seen you one time since then. Um, I said, yeah, this this would be a good open mic. A, it's right down the street from where I work, and I was looking for like a once a week. All these other things are like monthly or the you know the first the first harvest moon at eight. Yeah, I know. It's, like, it's, it's <laughs> like how do you get something going once a month? You can't, you know. It's, and then one thing comes up, and I can't do it because of a birthday party or soccer practice or whatever. And now two months have gone by since I did it. So I said I need something weekly, and I hemmed and hawed about it, and I said I'd love to go to. 
Um, I, did Growlers have an open mic before you started it? They do, yes. They have an open mic every Tuesday. But it's at, not comedians, though, right? It's, it's like a... just arts. open mic. Yeah, yeah. So anyone can go up, and some people, I guess... Uh, most people play music. Some people do poetry, and some people do comedy. You see, I would not do well at that. Have you ever done that open mic? Nah. <laughs> That's like the worst crowd. Like you I don't know, know why I haven't, though. Well, so how did you get in with the Growlers thing? Now, I just wanted to ask you a quick question. How did you get Cave's ear? Is it just like you just walked in and said, hey, can we start doing this? Or So my, uh, my friend Justin, the guy that's there most – he's there most of the time. Yeah, I know that yeah, guy, yeah. the grappler. Yeah, yeah. So he lives right down – Would it be a mischaracterization if I called him a cage fighter? That's what I thought when I first saw him as a cage he would, fighter. He would be honored. He, <laughs> he is the one who actually made the music for the beginning of this podcast. Oh, yeah. yeah that's yeah. right. So he, he, he's, he's very talented uh, musically, and all, he's, he's a really smart, awesome guy. Hopefully, get him on the podcast, because he's a lot of fun to talk to, too. But um, he lives right down the street from Growlers, so he's always there. And uh, I saw that they had a stage one time, and then the other time I went in there, and I was like, hey, man, let me talk to, uh, who do I have to talk to to do, um, you know, ho- host an open, a comedy specifically, oh, uh, a comedy specific open mic at Growlers. And he's like, oh, such and such, well, let's just go down there and see who's there. And we went down there, and it was Cave, and I talked to him about it, and then I sat there for a little, and he was like, yeah, it sounds like a good idea. And he told me to email some lady, and then I, we sat there for a little bit, and it was just like, you, you've been in there when we're there. It's, it was like me and like three or four other people, two of whom I know. And so I was just like, hey, Cave, can I go tell some jokes right now? Because the, there was already a mic and everything all set, set up. <laughs> ah, and he looked at me, and he's like, man, go ahead. And I was like, okay. And I just went up and did like 15, 20 minutes. And then um, I got off the stage, and I was like, yeah, I'll be back next week. <laughs> and the lady, did the lady ever get back to you, or was that just a total, like, non, didn't even have to happen? Uh, she did. So I emailed her, and she finally got back to me. I was just, like, really adamant about getting in there and being like, look, there's no one in the bar at that time. And it's either you have no one in the bar, or you have at least, like, three or four people buying drinks, which is a plus. Like, what are you going to do, you know? And uh, she was like, okay, go ahead. So wait, the first time when you got to her, she's like, nah, I don't think we're interested. She's not, no, she didn't say no. She was just like, well, she just wasn't sure. She needed to be convinced. Right. Mm. Interesting. Yeah. So, you know, that's that. I still have never met her. We were double booked at one time with the Connect Four tournament, but that was fucking dope. We all just <laughs> entered in the Connect Four tournament, which you did great because <laughs> of your children. Third, I made it to the third round, baby. My seven-year-old. He got into Connect Four for whatever reason, and if you've ever had a impetuous six or seven year old, they have no regard for any social convention. So Dude. I'd be eating my breakfast and be like, "Dad, Connect Four, Connect Four. Literally, he has it in his hand with all the pieces in a bag. Dad, Connect Four, Connect Four, Connect Four. That's funny, dude. dude? <laughs> well, okay, I want to. I have a question. So you you said that you're almost forty now, right? I am forty. You're you are forty. Okay. Yeah, I turned forty uh, like six weeks ago. Oh, uh, so dude, why did it take you so long to just get on stage? Did you, okay, so, um, like people who do stand-up comedy, though it's not uncommon, they know pretty early on. You know, at least like in their, their 20s or maybe into their 30s, they're like, everyone's telling them like, get on stage, like what the fuck are you doing, you know? 
were you just ignoring all of that or, or well so so that's a great question so seeing my act you know that it definitely was not a bunch of people prodding me to get on stage what, are you talking about? what do you mean seeing your act Dude, you, your, your, your shit is is great <laughs> no i you know I, I think it comes down to this there's two factors to this number one is the larger one which is i didn't realize it was just something anyone could do i don't know why i know in this age you sit here and you listen to comedians get interviewed. One of my favorite podcasts for the last like three or four years has been Marin's podcast. Episode after episode in the beginning, a comedian would come on like a Todd Barry or like a Dave Cross or, uh, you know, I mean, any comedian you've ever heard of pretty much has been on there. And they all start with, yeah, I didn't, I didn't know it was something I could do. And in college, my, you know, XYZ happened to have a connection and we went down. And then I said, oh, I'll get up and try that. And I just was thinking, I, I'd always think in my head, yeah, but that was like in 1984, you know, when they right. it was different, or that was in New York, or whatever, you know. It just if something if you don't if not on the right track to accept information, it doesn't get accepted. It just kind of swims right by you. And so right. until my wife came out of nowhere and said, "Hey, you know that the comedy club uh, does a, a class thing," and I went, "Well, there you go. That's a perfectly legitimate avenue. I could do it. It's artificial. Like I don't have to like." make my chops over two years or whatever and, right. and get onto a stage. I pay them 200 bucks and they'll put me on the stage once and that'll be nice. That'll be nice, yeah. yeah. And then after getting off stage, I remember, and it's one of my, my favorite comedy moments, I got off, it was re- I got good applause. I mean, obviously it was my first time ever, so anything would have felt good, but it was, Isaiah, it was like 200 and something people anyway. So it was, it was great. I landed Dude. right on five minutes. I, you got that big clock up in the air there. I landed right where I wanted to land on my line. The ending line was not great. It was an impression. I don't do good impressions, but I only had a couple yeah. days to come up with the material. Well, and so I ended on it, and then I walked off to this applause, and the first thing, someone came up to me and said, hey, man, you got to do the open mic at Cock and Bull. It's on first Thursdays. And I was like, hey, I was like in this euphoric state, so I was like, I don't even know who it was. I don't even recognize who that was, but I feel like it was Johnny Hobbs. But Hell, I yeah. Yeah, I feel like that. Maybe that's just me being a revisionist historian. I'm sorry, I was cutting you off. You're no, dying I, I wasn't, question. dude. This is about. I'm on this podcast so much. It's the the other voice we need to hear. But All right, dude, I have a way to drown people out. <laughs> <laughs> no, dude. Hell yeah, we need that. So, did um, you know when McCurdy's used to be further up on on 41, right? Yes. Never. I never went there when it was there. But yeah. I know exactly where it is because I drive by there all the time. So first of all, to again, we're gonna gotta to anyone listening to this, this is a very Sarasota, Florida specific, uh, like a lot of a lot of specific stuff. Because this is Greg is a is a comedian who lives in Sarasota. Like I live in Sarasota. This is where I grew up and whatnot. And so, uh, yeah, this is this is like small. This is like medium sized town to city comedy scene. And, and um, I think he can speak true to, to so many people living either in a, in a small city like this or in a small town close to a small city. This stuff's out there, so no matter what we talk about, it will translate. You can find a way to translate it. I, I, yeah, I definitely think so, because I know there's a million guys that are just like me on the other side of this. I have a friend who's a truck driver, and I'll tell you the story about this guy in a minute. But, so the first thing was, I just didn't know it was something you could do. I yeah. didn't know you could do that. and um, I didn't know. <laughs> right? I, you know what it goes back to for me every time I say anything like that is Dave Chappelle's that big special he did back in uh, 2001, Dave Chappelle's special, where he did all his white guy voices. Right. Did you ever see that special by any chance? Which, which one was it? It was the one where, um, you know, I, I'm Was like, it oh, for what it's worth? 
It was from like 01. It's old. It's old. It was like when Dave Chappelle went from like regular comedian to like, you know, immortal. Well, you'll, you'll know the line. He's driving around with his buddy. and it's, Yeah, it's yeah. I didn't know I buddy. couldn't do that. Exactly. Exactly. I love that line. I didn't know I couldn't do that. It's like, it I, was killing him know. softly. Uh, killing him softly was the one. Yes. Yeah. I know. I'm sitting here with a laptop right here, too. I'm going to be much smoother on that. There will not be oh, a no, question. It's, it's I won't be able to answer to myself going forward. Yeah, killing him. So yeah, killing him softly. Killing him softly. Yeah, Dude, that was he, unbelievable. The guy that he always talks about, his white friend, is always Neil Brennan. Oh, Neil Brennan is the guy. I do you know, I know who? Know that. Did you know? Do you know who uh, Neil Brennan is? I know he's a comedian, and I've heard of him. Okay, so Neil Brennan, uh, yes, he is a stand-up comedian. He's a friend of Dave Chappelle's, and uh, they co-created the Chappelle Show. That which was great. Which was great, and they were like yeah. really sort of um, 50-50 on the whole show. They actually made a pact to never tell anyone who came up with what sketch or what joke within sketches. No yeah. kidding. Yeah, I mean, unless it was another, some other writer or whatever, but it, between the, the two of them, it was kind of like, because they just didn't want to have that sort of fissure. And then there's, you know, there's a lot of back and forth. There's a thing that happened with uh, with Dave, and then apparently they tried to like, div- uh, the... the um, they try to like divide and con- uh, Comedy Central, the network heads try to like divide and conquer and do this whole fucking thing, and it just caused them both to kind of like part ways. And I, I had kind of heard something about like the network themselves coming up with the problems that that obviously prematurely killed that show because that was such a great show, but there was obviously something more to it than that because oh yeah we can and we can just went off the map. Yeah, I mean, I, I uh, yeah, I just listened to a podcast like a really old podcast with uh neil brennan on it and he was talking about it so it was kind of maybe like a year or two fresh but um anyway hell yeah dude and and and, so yeah what were you saying about that for what it's worth was that like the 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 stand-up comedy that maybe did it for you um no i mean that was such a long time ago i saw that like when it was out you know that was and that was 15 years ago, 14 years ago. So the two things that got me to do it, number one, where I took this class out of nowhere, and then someone said, hey, people do open mics. You come back again. This doesn't have to be a, you know, you pay 200 bucks thing. And I was like, oh, okay. And um, I started doing the McCurdy's open mics. And then, you know, little by little, I started peeling back the onion. And I said, wow, there's a lot here. And then now I've kind of fallen in love with just the community itself. Like, I love going to McCurdy's. And it's like, hey, what's, everybody knows me. Yeah, I get to say hi to Johnny. If Johnny says something good about my stuff, I'm always stoked. Maybe right. I'm not aiming high enough because some people are like, I don't do McCurdy's because I want to, you know, it messes with the look, whatever. People have this idea they're going to become comedians. I honestly just am very happy coming up with funny material and getting better at spitting it out through a microphone. Which, and that's, dude, that's it. Yeah. All those, yeah and nice. I don't have any delusions of grandeur. I think the number two thing. I don't, maybe this is the number one thing, and that was the number two. No, the number one thing was definitely, I didn't even know this was something you could do. The number two thing is that my father passed away last March, and I think that put me in like a, you know, where am I at with my life type of thing. Also, turning 40 will do that for you, man. It'll start making you think, like, how many years do I have left? Like, what am I doing? Now you Probably realize about half. I, well, I'd love to say that, but my father's father had six heart attacks, dropped dead at 46. He had ten kids, dude. Well, that'll my, that that'll that uh, those Irish, yeah. you know. <laughs> he, yeah, that's yeah, right. The Irish guy, and he, you know, the funny thing is, he weighed like a buck ten or something. He was like a frail little guy, so I don't know how the hell he had. Yeah, but he had the weight of ten kids on his shoulders. That must have been. <laughs> he had kids literally clogging his arteries with their <laughs> angst. 
And then uh, <laughs> my father didn't quite make it to 60, man. He would have turned 60 Mar- May of 2014, and he, did, he made it only to March of 2014. So given the graph, you should make it to at least 80. Well, that's what I'm thinking, right? I mean, I, I'm not exactly sure which formula I would take, but, you know, the, the pattern insinuates I'll at least make it to 60-something, right? Maybe, yeah. right? The, the simple math would be I got another 14 years on my dad, 74. Look, That'd be sweet. 74. And with, they both were and with, smokers. With, I don't smoke. There you so go, dude. Know. See, that's a big one. If you're not a tobacco user, that's a big one. Yeah. And they're probably, they were probably smokers like the kind where they got like packs and packs of just straight you know, tobacco. But uh, uh, e- even somebody, like, dude, even, even people who smoke occasionally, like, uh, when they drink or something, even that's not, the human body is, is it's, it's made to take that kind of shit and actually get stronger from it. Oh, you, so you don't think it's a big deal, just one a month or, like, a couple of months? Not even a little bit. Yeah, I think you're probably right on that, but that's dangerous because uh, I know some people that do that, I'm not going to name names, and it's a... Uh, you know, it, it's such an addictive substance that it will eventually suck you back in. You know, I know people that have started like in their late 30s after not ever smoking just by screwing around, trying to be the cool guy. Trying to be a cool you guy. Know? You start too late, man. Yeah. And people quit. I mean, the number one way to quit is just quit 50 times. That, yeah. One of those 50 times will stick. There's no, uh, the people that can go cold turkey or the people that can just do it immediately, I, I don't understand that. They're because anomalies. It is, they are, right? And yeah. if you try and... People say, oh, George Burns smoked and drank until he lived to 100. Okay, how much would he have lived to, though, and what type of quality of life would he have had if he didn't do that stuff? Right. You know, I, people always pick the anomaly. It's like the thing, I heard a comedian say it, and it was really funny, that it stuck with me, that basically when people pick these anomalies, and they say, what about that? It's like, that's like being on the, you know, the, the items that are on the news. Mm-hmm. They're so incredible that they're on the news. Like, they took three minutes to show you. How is that an example that has any useful... Uh, application to your life i mean yeah yeah we're, we're just average like we are in the middle of the bell curve here <laughs> yeah and but and that's not even like uh, most of these things that people are talking about they're not even like 50 50s they go ah there's one person out there that lived to 100 doing it i'm fine no there's millions of people that died early and like had nasty endings like those those cigarette those anti-smoking commercials wow, they are really brutal Dude, you so, ever watch those? Oh, of course you can't not. Dude. Jesus, we live in we live in a time. Uh, we live in a time where any or in a society where anyone who chooses to smoke knows one hundred percent the full repercussions of smoking. There isn't a single person in the United States that does not know what happens when you Do, smoke. So let me ask you this: Do you feel though, like that people in the fifties didn't know? I mean, come on, you well, didn't they, smoke they, into your lungs. They see their parents hack, and they don't make the. Well, they, they, I'm sure there's there's some sort of intuition with it, and they go, yeah, you know, something's up. But then they um, <laughs> they need they need somebody to like come around and and hold their hand and tell them like, hey, this shit is you're putting fire burning you're putting burning things in your lungs. This is you're inhaling smoke like all the time. People all the that time. smoke like you know multiple packs. You hear these like I I did know a guy that smoked three packs. How do you even find the time to do anything else? That's sixty cigarettes each take a certain amount of time to smoke you're only awake for we'll say 16 hours a day i mean dude when you when you start mapping it out it's like are you literally going to the cigarette while you're eating your cereal in the morning yes it's they're Jesus. like a, they're like zen masters you know they're God, just that seems always, so brutal yeah it is i have uh i actually have a whole string of like cigarette 
uh, jokes that I do, that I used to do. And um, lay a couple on us, man. You got them ready to go. Give us yeah, a couple of course. Oh, jokes. Of course. As soon as I start talking about them, they they come up. So like, uh, when I was I smoked before, like I smoked cigarettes before I moved to New York, and then uh, I quit for a really long time, and then I went to New York, and fucking everyone is smoking cigarettes in New York City. It's the most expensive thing you can fucking do. It's twelve dollars a pack. On oh average. my god, that's it's so bananas, much. dude. If you want to have Dude, and, and alcohol isn't much cheaper. In fact, most drinks are around that price, too. It's it's bananas, right? So, uh, yeah, do, hitting the open mic scene in New York pretty fucking hard. It's it's very, very, very common to go into an open mic, and it's literally no one else but comedians. So it'll be you and 20 other comedians, and you go up one after another. Always like It's never like five or six dudes. It's always like 20 fucking people at an open mic, right? There's nothing you can do in New York, by the way, that will not have a line of 20 people doing it. Oh, of course. It's just the, I, it's that's just why I hate it. I can't live up there, man. I it's just, can't do it. Oh, we're not meant to live that way. That's for sure. Yeah, it's just basic, basic statistics, of course. And so what happens is a lot of these people are in this, this, uh, this routine and this cycle of going to these open mics where it's just other comedians. And then they don't have the time in front of like a, an audience of just you know the, the layman the regular folk right and then when they finally do they get up on stage and they start telling these jokes and they're just so dark and twisted and morbid and no one <laughs> no one connects with it and everyone's like what the fuck because what happens dude comedians are hot, so hypercritical especially in a place like fucking new york dude because everyone thinks they're going to be the next shit so they all get in there and and everyone has this problem with just like Again, just surrendering to that guy on stage and letting and acting like an audience member, you know. And so they, uh, <laughs> everyone is not only are they just in there. They're like, I'm a comedian, and I'm listening to this guy as a comedian, and you're just picking it apart, which happens almost unnaturally. Like you don't really have much of a choice. That's why you're a comedian. And then uh, the other, like the other half of it is that they're sitting there trying to like remember the shit that they're gonna do. You know, they're maybe like looking at their notes or whatever. So you begin. Of course, when you're going on stage in front of like this, the, these audiences over and over again, like you want, you're, we're there to get laughter. So you're gonna start tailoring, like, okay, well that didn't make them laugh, and then you change something, like, oh, well that made them laugh. And before you know it, you've been pulled down this thing where like your all your jokes are about like suicide and like just awful shit that comedians laugh at, right? I've heard of that. Yeah, people get sucked into that making the jokes with the other open micers, and that's like. It's like poisonous, like you just said, yeah. Yeah, it happened to me. I had firsthand experience with it. So I had this this, thread of, this, this string of jokes where I went on stage and I, um, I just started out. And again, the first thing you say to an audience, the very first joke you say is like what has to really set up the entire, your entire set, like who you are, right? And what kind of jokes you're going to have. And you've seen me, right? You said I was wearing some Where's Waldo shit. Like I'm, you've seen me, right? <laughs> yeah. You've, you've fucking seen me. And that was so only I, the one time, actually. I, I'm trying to think what you typically start with. You know what it is? I don't ever think about the first thing you say at Growlers, just because you've already been introducing the whole thing, typically. Right. So, it's, so it's, you're yeah. already a running start. But I'm sorry. Go ahead. What was the Go back to what you were saying with the starting of this, uh, this downward set. spiral negative stuff. Yeah, so I had this I had this set, and I, went, I would go on stage. And so I, I, was, I did it at an open mic a couple times, and they laughed. And then I had... Oh, I... Um, was on a show with like regular people and I go up in front of these people and I go, <clears throat> again, your voice has to match, like your comedic voice has to match your persona, everything it has to match up, it has to fall in line. So if you start saying things 
I mean, and again, that's a blanketed statement. There's always outliers. People could have all different styles. But it, well, so no, no, I totally agree with you, and that's a true thing. Right. The only the only anomaly to that is if your thing happens to be, I look like that, and I sound like this, or I look, or I talk like this, but I look like that. That's, exactly, that's your whole thing. That's super limiting. But yeah, I look like a, I look like I'm put together, but baby, do I have it bad, right? <laughs> it, and that could be yeah so but that's definitely not me by any means it's not the way i think who i am but I, I went up on stage and then the first joke i say is uh i smoke cigarettes because i'm suicidal and then everyone's like this guy <laughs> they're like oh man if this guy's you know like they're thinking like this guy's suicidal what do i got like this guy looks like he's you know what's he got <laughs> to be suicidal about you know so it's already just so confusing but the jokes, the, the writing themselves, I was really happy with the whole thing because uh, I said, you know, cigarettes are uh, – and then I say that. I say how, you know, we live in a society where anyone who chooses to smoke full – like knows fully the repercussions of smoking, right? Because just the information is so readily available. And so um, it's like a layaway system for suicide. It's like I want to kill myself just, uh, you know, not now. <laughs> gonna ah. fucking put in a couple bucks on it right i like that and then um and then i say and i was like it's interesting i was like you know you're hanging out with somebody and uh it's very common and no one you know it's very accepted for someone to be you know in a social setting and then and then go all right guys i'm just gonna step out for a smoke real quick right and everyone accepts that but what they're really saying is hey everything happening around me right now is so fucking lame i'd rather step outside and slowly kill myself <laughs> I like that. Yeah. yeah, the smoking thing is weird. You can chop it up so many little aspects of it and be like, "Yeah, I'm going to go have a smoke." Is like, oh, I cannot even deal with the stress of the situation that you guys are just kind of. I'd be. I'm going to go out and kill myself with some toxic whatever that was. <laughs> exactly. You guys are great and all, but I'd rather step outside <laughs> alone and slowly kill myself. You know, you might not remember this, um, but back before all the smoking laws, if you went to a bar, smoker or not. Like it's, um, certain types of bars. If you went to like a maybe a Growlers would be a good example. If you filled up a Growlers, that's that type of surface area with a bunch of people smoking all night. Like eight o'clock, you know, the place fills up. Nine o'clock, it's rocking. Ten o'clock, rocking. By like eleven o'clock, maybe eleven thirty, whatever. It, now it gets into like the math of like number of people in surface area and whatnot. But like the smoke would start to fill up the ceiling, like the top part of the ceiling, and start to like come down. And you would leave a bar. I, there was one particular bar I remember in uh, my hometown of Salem, Mass, where I remember leaving the bar at, like, whatever the last call was like. Uh, actually, last call was early in Salem, so it wasn't even, like, because they were open extra late. It would be, like, 1230, and the entire top five feet of the ceilings, there were high ceilings, but, like, the entire top five feet were just loaded with thick smoke, like, like a cloud of tar smoke. God, dude, it's probably also like heat from people just being in there and like breath. Just I'm, it's it was, a cloud. Ugh, it was so terrible. And you'd come home, and whether even if you didn't even have a cigarette, your clothes would totally smell that nasty cigarette smell. It'd be all over your jacket, all over your clothes, all over everything. You know, people just live like that. Now we make them go outside. So think about that. The implications of that for people that live up in the north, like it's January first. We're going for the New Year's thing. But I got to go outside every 20 minutes, the smoker people, and stand in the freezing cold, freeze their ass off to have a cigarette. Mm-hmm. You know, and then, like, they start figuring out, like, ah, it's not so bad out here. I'm sick of walking all the way back and forth. 
I'm just going to get my beer. We're going to hang out. We're going to have like our own little outdoor smoker party like out in front of this bar. Yeah, dude. Fuck and, it. How many, how many friends or how many connections <laughs> did you make because of smoking at some point, you know? Right. right. That's totally true. That's totally true. And there are times when you're at a party and um, you just want to step away. Like for me, I'm like a heavier guy. I told you I got these – well, we'll get into it. I got these little social anxiety issues. So you bring me up north where like they jack the heat up indoors – and it's like a Christmas party or like, you know, sometime in February when it's like super hot and dry inside. You just want to step out for two minutes. It was great for that. You get out, get a little air, you know. And you just can't do that if you don't smoke. People are like, what? you're just getting up in the middle of my story. I just want to go stand on the porch and get away from you for like three minutes. Is that just cool? Gotta go, I got to go uh, make a payment on the. I got to go make a I, I got to make a call. I got to make a call. It's a really important call. <laughs> really important. Dude. I'm gonna. Uh, I'm going to have to pause for an intermission, real short. I gotta pee. All right. I'm. I'm black. Sweet. All right. Drained it. No, we're good. Okay. So now I'm just gonna write down. Hold on, real quick. Uh, here's my pen. So um, let's just take a second, real quick. This is something I thought of while I was hitting the head. Right. Oh, what is that? A Yanger Langer? No, nah, it's Sunday, man. I got I'm actually starting a new job tomorrow, so I'm drinking soda water. Good. It's good for your digestion. So, um, it's very okay. So let's let's just take a moment and and pat ourselves on the back. That's my dude. I love I love being aware of the uh, like when something's a bit of a, like a brag or or some kind. Maybe it's like a humble brag. Yeah. I, I did it one time on stage where I said something and then I turned around and I was like, hey, can everybody just pat my back? Just line up and yeah, just pat it for me, huh? <laughs> and uh, I want to keep doing that more. I did it the other day to a friend while I was talking to him. He, he like complimented me in some way. And he's like, thanks, man. I was like, because, yeah. oh, I gave him a beer. And he's like, thanks, man. I was like, yeah, yeah, that, that's great. Could you just pat my back? They all, oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, comedy, stand up comedy, is and I, I and agree with me or don't agree with me, either or it doesn't matter because I would love to, I love to see hear how you how you feel about it. Comedy is a very stand up comedy is a very special and it has to be stand up specifically. It's a very special art form, and because uh, there are no prodigies in stand up comedy. There are no youth prodigies in stand-up comedy. You don't think there are any? There I think are, there are some. I think there are some that, that take to it quickly, maybe. Right. There's a difference between having a knack for it and kind of having that storytelling uh, kind of thing about you, right? But just the ripening of the stand-up comedian who is somebody uh, – like, because even someone who might take to it – like, for instance, Dave Chappelle took to it very quickly. Like, he was doing stand-up – very early on, he became obsessive with it. He moved to the city and he was telling jokes. You know, he'd go and do a show and then he'd go out in Washington Square and fucking just stand up on the fountain and start telling jokes there. Like, so, um, but even still, who was Dave Chappelle until he was in his mid to late 20s, you know? Right. Going into his 30s. So there are, but yet there are kids who are six years old, they can write, uh, you know, a symphony, like some kind of symphony. Or there's even been kids who are like 12, 13 years old who wrote entire novels. Uh, 
any and literally there's people there's there's children who paint beautiful fucking portraits and landscapes and stuff at like six again right but there's something about stand-up comedy that you it you it, the art form itself i don't think you can you can be young and do it because yeah, because have, i think i think you're talking about two different things and this this ties into what i was actually going to say which is i didn't realize how technical stand-up is it's not just Hey, I'm kind of funny. I'm going to go up there, and I, you know, you want it to sound like it's very off the cuff and just coming to you as it comes. But you don't actually want to go up there and do that. That sucks. When you see a guy do that, you're like, "What are you doing, dude? You're wasting all of our time." Yeah. And, yeah, yeah. and so when you're talking about these child products, there are kids that can paint, but they're not going to be, you know, painters until they're older, until they figure out the the professional aspects of it. You know, someone that can, right? I mean, there are funny kids. I, I totally agree with you. I know I sound like I'm like arguing your point there against your point i'm not you're right there's no prodigy stand-up because and, and even if a kid's really funny at 18 it's very unlikely he's going to be making any money at it for for several years but that's more learning the like specifically what people need in a particular show to laugh right you know because the, there are people there are kids that are funny right that's yes. like the talent the professional aspect of being a professional funny person so is, uh, it takes a lot of work. Yeah, it, and it does. It, it does take a lot of work. And and yeah. So what you're what you're talking about is the like the honing of the techniques and the craft itself. And I more mean the aspect of relating to a group of people through experiences, which is what stand up comedy is. Like you have to have like how many people in there. Like what is it? What is an eighteen year old gonna say? that will necessarily relate to your life now or something that you, you maybe you did relate to, but how many years ago? And even now you look upon whatever he's saying and been like, dude, I went through that like so long ago. Yeah, I, I get what he's saying. It's funny, but it's not like, you know what I mean? It, it's, it's the having lived through the life up to most comedians, like, uh, yeah, most comedians become out, they get out there at like age 30. And I think that's just a combination of, uh, yeah, the combination of honing the technique itself and then also having the ray of experiences right there in the middle of the road. Definitely, right? Because they start when they're 20 or in their 20s, but it's going to be 10 years. Like, you know, you've heard that 10,000 hours thing. Yes, of It takes 10,000 hours to become an expert. I don't know if that's like, you, you know, I mean, 10,000 hours is literally, what is that, 500 days? Yeah, but that's like a that that's to become like a, a complete master expert. There are, there are so many comedians who who are professional, like they're touring or they've been on things. They're they're very famous comedians who started when they were like thirty five or even when they were like forty, and then almost two years later, they were just that was it. So they they picked up the technique enough and and be, just because you know they had that knack for it, that way to feel it out and and explain themselves uh but yeah after like two years they're just they're there and they'll be like yeah i've been doing it for like four or five years or two years and well there's luck and timing in it too right because if you're in new york if you're in la or potentially even if you're in chicago and you're up there every night for two years if you're doing like you know a heavy booking like four or five nights a week for two years there's a good chance someone's going to see you and say hey that guy kind of looks like Kevin James, maybe we could put him in a thing or whatever, you know, or right. you do some commercial work and the next thing you know, I've noticed that like a lot of guys that are in commercials are like becoming actors now, which is, which is weird because usually 
you had you know commercial actors who were like, eh, they tried it for a while and then they just go the commercial route and that's it. But like, look at the guy. Do you ever see that movie, um, the, the drumming movie that won the Oscar, Whiplash? No. So last year there was a movie called Whiplash. It was actually a really compelling movie. I highly recommend it. But it had Jake, not J.K. Rowling. That's the lady that wrote. <laughs> what you call it? His name is like J.R. Something uh, you know what Wikipedia is going to tell me, but he is in the farmers commercials. Have you ever seen those farmers commercials where they have the guy? They're, they're like any farmers commercial right now. He's like the face of. He's like that ball guy. He, yeah, that guy. He was the star of this movie Whiplash. And the movie, just real quick, gist was this kid was like a drummer, and he wanted to go to this school that has got a really famous, uh, not orchestra. I guess it was like a jazz band. Um. And this guy was the teacher of that band. And he was like super, like create. Like he'd be like, "Go ahead, give me the give me the beat to the song." The guy would start playing and be like, "That sucks." Yeah. Do it again, or you're out of here. And like he like threw shit at him, and he was like he's beating the kid up, and the kid was like playing drums like a madman, and he'd be, you know, just slightly off tempo, like imperceptible to the human ear, and the guy would be like, "Get the fuck out of here!" Hot damn. J.K. Simmons was the guy. Yeah. So he's 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 this farmer's guy. So even to the point where, and obviously you didn't watch the Oscars that year, it was uh, Neil Patrick Harris hosted the Oscars. He won the Oscar for Best Actor, the guy named J.K. Simmons. And he said, uh, which this will stay with me probably even when I'm senile, he won an Oscar, blah, 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 blah. Ah! It was like so pervasive dude. that he's like the farmer's guy, dude. Dude, he fucking hit it. There's he another dude, too. The park. There's another dude who, yeah, it was actually, it was hilarious when he did it. And there was another dude who was in, uh, he's in these stupid, If you don't watch football, but if you watch football, pervasive commercials for the insurance companies, not farmers. The other one is um, uh, Discount Double Check, which is, that's farmers. The other one is, I should know it, right? Because they probably, the, I know the commercial, but they have this guy who's always yelling, Discount Double Check. And right. he was in a movie with, um, he was like a lead role. He was in a movie where Ben Affleck, uh, Ben Stiller played, um, what was that? Um, uh, it was a Ernest Hemingway story, Walter Mitty. Right, okay. Um, the Secret Life of Walter Mitty, that's what it was. And yeah, yeah, yeah. this guy was like one of his, he, wasn't, he didn't have a huge role. But he had a role, so and I was like, well, the guy is so pervasive as that guy. Why would you cast him in your movie? You know, right, I could we, see if you were making like a little art school project, and like we got the guy. But well, like, what is well, uh, okay? So, what were these guys doing before their commercials? Were they just solely commercial actors? I I don't know. I know that guy only from the commercials that he's in, and he's been in a million commercials for whoever the hell that is. His name is. God, he's not even listed in the credits. He's like in the movie, like a big piece of the movie. All right, so I'm so, looking at J.K. Simmons' IMDb right now. Yeah. Just to see what else he's done. Well, he would, dude, he's been in a number of movies. He was in fucking Juno, dude. He was in The Closer, Spider-Man in 2002. Yeah, you know what? You're right. You're right. I guess he was a guy that was, he had bit parts. He always played like the dad. He was the dad in Juno. Yeah. So, all right, I guess, what the hell am I talking about? They just put him in so many commercials and they just went through that. They went, no, he's already been an actor. Who cares that he's in a million of these mo- of commercials? He won the part. We're going to give it to him. That might be something. But how about look up the um, look up the Secret Life of Walter Mitty. So what was the what, what what's the commercial name or the insurance for 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 J.K. Simmons? <coughs> no, 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 the other guy. Oh, for the other guy. Um, 
God, it's that discount double check is what okay, they... Discount. Double yeah. check guy. <laughs> yeah, you know what? Discount double check guy. Dude, you know, you know what's really interesting is... is uh, it's State Farm. These um, images. Here we go. Is he the, the fatter guy? Yep. Nice. Oh, yeah, yeah. Ever, I, saw, I saw this, the secret life of, of Walter Mitty. I, I saw that. You recognize him as the he was the other guy that was in like the lab with um, Ben Stiller. Yes. So he was he didn't have a huge role, but he was kind of like the guy that got like shit canned at some point. He was kind of they checked back with him a few times, and he was like, if you watch football, which millions of people do, you see this guy every thirty seconds. It's so annoying how many, and I didn't even realize until just now. It's State Farm and Farmers and Nationwide. That are just pounding you with commercials. Oh yeah, dude. They know these people are drinking and driving, and they need that shit. And... <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean they're just the biggest industries that are out there, man. They own, they run everything. Yeah, it's insurance. We're all paying hundreds of dollars to them every month, so they show a couple commercials to try and sign people. I mean, people do flip, like Geico and Progressive, and uh, what even like that really lame ass one, the General. You've seen those uh, commercials. General. Like who's, com, yeah. who's getting that? Like I got five Dewey's and I'm I'm only 22 and you know my dad is not going to get my insurance. Oh, the general might insure me for however much a month, and you know they probably just offer the same type of rates and they just don't pay stuff out. They probably jip the other insurance companies on the end. I happen to kind of have a little inside track on that because I did a job for a while in the insurance industry, and that's kind of how it works. But for the person who's buying the insurance, it's cheap. What do you care? You can just jump around. If you're going to save five bucks a month, what do you care which one of your which car insurance you have? Exactly, they're all doing yeah. the same thing. Exactly. But, but, but there's got to be something in the advertising, right? Because they they just pound it. I don't even like watching a football game with my kids, even though I am really trying to indoctrinate them to be football fans because it's just something I always did since I was a kid, and I just love the whole just football. I'm not that guy that watches baseball, baseball season, basketball, all that crap. I'll watch them, I guess, take a passing interest maybe if I'm stuck somewhere. I don't mind it. But the only sport that I do watch is the NFL, not even just all football. It's really just pro football. What are you going to do, right? Stuff hits you when you're young. I'm guessing that your dad is not a huge football fan. He wasn't. He wasn't a huge football fan. But I've made uh, friends over the years, like really close friends who have been very big football fans, whether it's the NFL or the uh, like college football yeah but, and, but that didn't do anything for you though you're not a, you're not a big football fan right but they they did give me insight onto what it is that that's so drawing about it so i can i could definitely say if i was young and grew up in a family that was really into football and and uh you know followed that kind of thing then i would have done it too but my family never did it my dad never did it there was no one around who did and it, up and I was just so disinterested. I even I, like I played flag football when I was a kid for a season, and I just fucking hated it. And um, but you know, once I was older and I made friends with people who who were really fucking into that shit, then uh, then I was they they explained it to me why they liked it, and I was always around. I was like, dude, you know, I I see what the draw is. I'm obsessed with other things the the way you are about this. So yeah, I I, I see it. It's just like a it's just like a type of comfort it's an easy instant way to get back to like your childhood you know if you anything that you did with your dad or somebody when you were a kid that you enjoyed it's just nice to have that that easy way yeah and it's such a great way to connect with people it's like in new york city if you don't know anyone if you, if you meet someone you don't know them off the bat you can almost 100 percent 
guarantee you'll have a common ground to talk about the subway, you know, how much the fucking, oh yeah, the G train, oh, that piece of shit, you know, it's just being, it's, it's, it's a way to connect with other people too, especially if you're a salesman, you have to watch, you have to watch football. You do. That's totally true. You got to do all those big mainstream things, know the holidays, what everyone's doing. It helps to have a wife and kids, I think, to go into sales. And that's actually an endeavor that I'm going to take tomorrow. I have my first sales job ever starting tomorrow. And you're absolutely right. I'm, it's going to help me out to be able to talk football and all the other guys' guy stuff. That's right. Hey, you look like a man's man, a yeah. guy's guy. Yeah. You look like you got a cup pair of nuts between your thighs. <laughs> they always pick, like, when they're trying to show that on, like, a movie or something, they always pick these, like, these things that no actual American, normal American, regular average show deals with. You know, like, oh, go hunt. We want to go hunt a bear, then smoke cigars and you know, drink brandy out of a snifter or whatever. It's like nobody does any of that crap. It's, but it's not fun to watch in a movie a bunch of guys eat too much and drink a million beers and just sit around and yell at their TV. Bar. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> but that's, you know, that's much more realistic, I think, for the average Joe experience on a Sunday. Exactly, yeah. And and, and like I said, I I, uh, I can get down. I can understand it. You, would, you were talking about how in the um, beginning, your first – minute on stage like defines you do you know do you remember what my first thing is i've been doing it for like a while now i think it's because it just gets a laugh and it's really quick that's why i think of it but i wonder what tone do you think it sets and i'm curious do you even remember what my first uh, you know what i might not even do it at growlers actually because i don't do my yeah that's not fair i don't do my actual routine at growlers almost ever but my regular routine this is the line i open with okay i, I say um it's a couple of uh, I, I set the the mood with a couple of um, words that are involved with it. So I say, you know, my day job sucks. I don't know about you guys, but my job, it just seems like an endless string of shit. It's coming at me from all angles, and I'm just left in the back to just handle it myself day after day. <laughs> and I say, I, uh, I work in the returns department at a place that makes anal beads. Yes, I've heard you. I've heard you open. So wh- I'm curious, wh- what does that say about me? I suppose if that's my first, my first line. Okay, so the first, uh, your first laugh line comes out, and it's a and it's a shit joke, right? It's an endless stream of shit, right? Endless string. Come on, man. String. Like sorry. A- endless. I'm sorry. An endless <laughs> string of shit. And uh, so the whole joke, like, that's the first laugh line. You have a couple different laugh lines. The endless string of shit. It's coming at me in all directions. Maybe somebody might chuckle at that. And I'm left in the back to deal with everything myself. And then people can, can connect with that being in any kind of job where they're just kind of thrown to the wayside, whether they know you're going in the direction of another shit joke with anal beads or whatever it is. And then the, the punchline to, the, to round the whole thing off is I work at the returns department at, at an anal bead factory, right? Exactly. So the joke itself is is funny. So it's got a little bit of a bait and switch aspect of it where you lead them in one direction and then I work at a anal bead factory, right? So there's one direction, go in the other. And so that's the structure of the whole joke itself. Uh, and it connects with people because everyone has worked, or mo- you can say like 90% of everyone you're going to be speaking to has worked those kinds of jobs, worked, have been in an environment like that, whether it's a job or not, just something that they're, they don't, they're not content with and they want to do something else. And so that connects in all these very real world sort of ways, but the subject matter, I think itself, where you come, uh, you say the anal bead thing, how much of the rest of your set from then on 
goes on with things like anal beads and shit and and maybe sex or something like that because that's that's that was then the punchline that's what they're remembering and then they look at who like who are you as greg mcginnis and the whole anal bead thing is that like the joke is that the line of type or is that the type of joke that you commonly say in a setting of friends or you know is that you know it's funny it's really not the um it's, it does, you know the rest of my act really doesn't have anything to do with shit. doesn't have much to do with sex, usually. Right. And it doesn't even talk about what I do for work. It's, so it's like a, a, just an absurd line out there. So I guess and I'm not even an absurd guy when I do the rest of my act either. So maybe I need to, maybe I need to rethink it. You think it's like leaving people scratching their head? Like, why would he open like that and then go in a totally different direction and, and never bring it back again? Yeah, it, it does something. Well, so, uh, again, mo- um no one is is going to have any cognitive thought about it. Not consciously, right? Yeah, sorry, consciously. They're not. Yeah, you're, thank you. So no one's going to have any sort of conscious thought about what's going on. But there is something subconscious where they'll hear that they might chuckle or something. But then once the the first joke comes up, so whatever the next bit is that you do, I'm I feel it probably connects a little better to the audience with who you are, your persona, and your voice. And then, so it's almost like they even forget that whole little first chunk. It's like they probably don't even remember it at all, and it doesn't really stick with them. It doesn't, uh, so so it's like you're up there talking for a few minutes, and they're still trying to figure it out, and then you get it out of the way, and then the next thing they, so it's almost like you, you, you lose that whole, because you want to get them on your side the instant you get up there and have you. Isn't have, the most basic rule, though, to get them on the side, to say something that makes them laugh? Well, yes, yes, yes. But, uh, I think like, I, I want to go up there and like in the first, like I literally have, have listened to my sets and like chopped them up where I like just listen and write down like the ABC laughs, you know, usually right. you're going to have like a bell curve, the laughs, right. And we were the good one. We were the medium ones. And I go, you know what? I went 30 seconds there. I didn't get one person to make a laugh because maybe because my setup was too long. So I want to chop it down. But in the beginning, I want to have two things I say in the first like minute that give them an easy opportunity to laugh. And I, I don't want it to be forced. Right. I want it to be actually funny, you know? So maybe it's just I have not written enough stuff. It's got to be, dude, just fucking Johnny Carson that shit. Like, even less time has to go by before they they laugh. Um, just almost, okay, so really common thing that comedians use, it's one of the openers uh, that I use. So first I'll explain it, and then if you don't figure it out, I'll just tell you. So um, one of the most common... Thing openers that comedians will do, if, especially if they're not as known. So somebody like Jerry Seinfeld can walk out on stage, and so he doesn't necessarily have to lay out that uh, that first connection to the audience because everyone knows who he is. But assuming all other comedians, each audience is a new audience, you still have to have that first connecting thing. So again, what you're dealing with is them seeing you for the first time and their first perception of who you are. So uh, I, again, you can probably rattle off a list of comedians that'll get up there. Almost the first thing they'll say out of their mouth is a self-deprecating joke, making fun of themselves first, right? So be like, I know what you're thinking. I look like a cross between uh, Roseanne Barr and a fucking cheetah, you know? And then, so everyone's like, oh my, and then everyone starts laughing because no one was necessarily thinking it, but there was a part of them that's like, this guy looks kind of funny, you know? Right, and so you point it out, and then right then that that's a really really common th- 
thing. Well, that, so doesn't uh, my little anal bead joke kind of do that where I say I have like this really sucky job, even though it's like an absurdist thing? Does it kind of hit that same vein? I don't know it why. Does. Like, it absolutely does hit the same vein. It's 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 simply the and not it's just the anal bead and that that concept of the joke is what throws people for a loop. I think, if anything. But then if they make the connection, like if that's what he's saying he does for work. Like yeah. I, you know, they're like people. Some people don't even know what those are, which is kind of funny to me. So then maybe you should take the second to kind of explain the joke itself. That can. That's also another technique. So if you say it and then you get some laughter and then you go get it because you know the anal beads, they're they're beads you shove up your ass. I'm at the receiving. I'm huh, you know returns. Re- people have already used them. I don't know. Again, it has to fit into your style. Yeah, definitely. Because I was going to say, I am really big on if it doesn't fly as it is, you know, then you're doing that that seventy percent or joke or thirty percent are just not even going to try to understand. Right. I definitely don't want to spend any time at all pandering to that thirty percent because I think it pisses the other seventy percent off. I know, obviously, there's guys that go both ways with it, like you just said. Some guys' whole act is they put the joke out there and then they explain it. And that, but yeah, that's again that fits in there their persona of who they are, the the kind of person that would, you know, do that. Like I like a I like a Rodney guy. I, I think that's probably like my biggest influence in, in comedy was Rodney Dangerfield because when I was a kid he was so uh he was just so hot, you know, he was so even though he was I don't know, he was probably like in his sixties when I was growing up in my in the eighties. Dude, he's one of those people that got off to a late start. He wasn't even he wasn't even popular or he didn't even start doing stand up comedy until he was in like his 50s or 60s. Didn't even start doing it. He was a, a door-to-door salesman. He sold, he sold siding. He sold, sold siding? Yeah, he sold siding to uh, the house across the street from my cousin in Fairlawn, New Jersey. That's awesome. Yeah. <laughs> and like, you know, like a couple of years later, he's on the fuck. he sells siding to these people. A couple of years later, he's on fucking, you know, Johnny Carson. Oh, whoa, I tell you, I get no respect. Uh, boy, I'll tell you. Yeah, I, I think he had issues, though. I think personal issues kept him out. Because in the 80s, he definitely was, like, full-on, like, the guy that we all know, think of when we think of Ronnie Dangerfield. But I, I'm reading on the Wikipedia page here. It says, Sunday, March 5th, 1967, the Ed Sullivan Show needed a last-minute replacement for an act, and Dangerfield became the surprise hit of the show. You wouldn't think about that, Ronnie Dangerfield in the 60s, because yeah. he was really an 80s guy. In fact... By probably mid-90s, he had already burned it all up, and he was just making garbage. Oh, yeah. And it was just like, let me just listen to the old stuff. But he did enough during those 10 years. He was the guy, you know? He was. And he was. I, I've heard stories about him being obsessive about it and the people that he, he would work with. Uh, he would, like, run up to people, and he would, you know, always testing out new lines and new jokes and always writing, like, just obsessive. He was a fucking brilliant salesman, apparently. I mean, that seems pretty obvious, right? Because if you're personable and you can make people laugh, that's like that's a huge part of the battle, I think. Oh yeah, and just you know? having that dude, he was so quick, so quick on it. He, he had so such a library of lines too. You like that whole no respect thing? That's just so funny. All the things that you were just talking about, he would he could continually do it. It wasn't just open up, get yourself into a uh, self-deprecating thing, and then you know kind of let people know where you're coming from. He would just pound you with that for like 15 minutes. And so many of them hit, like one after the other after the other. Oh yeah! Holy crap! And then he was so he was so what's the word? Not he was so prolific during the eighties. 
he was on everybody's lips, and he just was quoted, and just people were doing Roddy jokes everywhere. Everywhere, yeah. Yeah, he really hit it big. And so that's probably, you know, a, a function of how old I am, that I was growing up in the 80s when I was starting to learn about, like, you know, the, the world of the R-rated everything, and Ronnie Dangerfield was, like, the funniest guy in the world. That was it, you know, at that exact moment. You get stamped, I think, in your late teens, right? A lot of your things get... Uh, don't you think? I mean, yeah, all things being absolutely. equal. Obviously, if your parents get killed in front of you when you're seven, a lot of things get stamped right then. Yeah, of course, a lot of yeah. That's not it. happening. It's going to happen like in your late teens. Yeah, because there's a there's a couple different times in your life where your your brain's just a mushy mess, and things that are happening around that time are just sticking. Especially, you know, one of them being when you're going through puberty, and that's when we're trying to figure out, I guess, most specifically our place in the world, right? Like what we want to do and all that kind of stuff. And so, yeah, if you're you're exposed to a powerhouse like Rodney Dangerfield right around that time, that's going to fucking stick, you know? Because it sets the standard. Like, there was nothing there in that little quadrant of your mind. Uh-huh. And then Rodney Dangerfield comes in, and, you know, because for me, anyway, it was that timing. And then I go, okay, this is the Rodney Dangerfield box. And then, like, over the next 10 years, I go, I realize that's the the comedy or the funny guy box. Right. But, I mean, you know, I, I never forget that originally that box had a label of Rodney Dangerfield. And I just scratched it out and put whatever else my adult label for it would be. That's yeah. huge. It's never going to – everything is the – It be, you know what it is? When you uh, – I think about this a lot too. Your experience is like those uh, – you ever had an eye test before? Yeah. And an eye doctor? They put that thing in front of you and they go, how does this work? Is that good? Is that good? And they put all these different lenses in front of you. Your experience basically, for better or for worse, is just a set of those things that come on, those filters – and of course, those ones are made just to make your literal your vision clearer. Right. Yeah, but those yeah. filters just come on, and once you get the Rodney Dangerfield filters on, everything that's funny to you, to, to a certain extent, is through that filter. Right. So how can it not become a same thing with music? When you are sixteen years old, seventeen years old, eighteen years old, somewhere in that ballpark, like that's the best music in the world for you. Everything else is through that filter. Will something ever overtake it when you're forty? You might be like, well, like, this is the best band in the world. That might happen, but it's an amazing thing when it does happen because that's through the filter of already what, you know, the initial yeah, bands that you set were the standard. Right, exactly. So you already have that foundation and then everything. So you probably, the, the next band that you then find to be the greatest band, you probably wouldn't have even experienced or, or tried to go out and find if it weren't for having the foundation of the first uh, a person like you know stand-up comedy or or music otherwise I, I and it probably goes into a lot of different things like oh yeah much, dude, anything I think... anything I, I think sometimes with um like for example the type of girl that isaiah cooper likes whoever uh-huh. that might be you know sometimes it's like a simple cultural thing right your parents wanted you to date a certain type of girl or you know you just know you all your friends have the no, no, that's not true. It, this is something I believe that happens in earlier formative periods. Yeah. Um, so it wouldn't be your friends. Like, oh my God, my friend goes out with a blonde. I'm going to go out with a blonde. That might be the case, but that's not why that's happening. That's right. something that happened way younger for you. You know, either you were the person that wanted to know what the social norms were and you really want to adhere to them, or you're the one that wanted to know them just so you could go the opposite direction. Yeah. So you, you're the. You're the uh, you know the the op, the oppositional or the what's the word that I'm looking for? Because of the C, like you're the not the contradictory, but you're the counter count. 
Right. You know, you know the word that I'm looking for. I think and, so. Uh, but you know, so you you're the everyone's going one way. You always want to be the other way. You always want to the Kansas City Shuffle, baby. The <laughs> everyone looks one way. You go the other. <laughs> there you go. It's uh, yeah, and, and uh, I, there's it's so hard to tell what uh, do they have. I don't want to go off in this tangent by any means. By any means, this it's, actually is the tangent I wanted to go to. So so tangent away. So tangent away. Well, there's yeah. so, I I. I there's so much evidence now. See, I don't know anything. I hear a lot of stuff. I read some things, watch some things, and I pair it. I pair it all day. But I know nothing. I know not shit. But a lot of people recently have been saying that uh, there's so much more than we even sort of understand. So like things we're maybe predisp- uh, predisposed to do can be less environmental effects and more genetic effects. Uh, And I don't mean things like, ah, I got a thyroid problem in my family or something like that. But like, even down, uh, even to like maybe your your parent was a singer, like a really good singer, and then you're born and you're a really good singer, you know? It's hard. It's always hard to separate those. Those nature nurture, that's what they call it. It, it, it is, right? but they're actually so so there's a lot of evidence and they're calling it epigenetics. So that means the uh, uh, the environment and the actions of a parent can affect the DNA of uh, can affect the genetics on a DNL DNA level that is then passed on to offspring. And uh, they found that people who experienced like six months or plus uh, of famine within a certain period of time before having children I don't, I don't, I can't remember if it was their children or the next generation after that lived for a significant amount of time longer, a significantly longer time. And, uh, they ran a test where they, you know, with, with rats, where they starved some rats and they had some other rats that they fed and whatnot. And, uh, then they had them have offspring and it was like their first generation. The, 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 uh, offspring was like more mild tempered. They, they weren't like so anxious all the time. Uh, they they had less weight on them, like physical weight, but they were like healthier. They just lived based on the previous generation having been Going, starved for a period. Yes, being yes, being starved. It's some really really <laughs> outrageous stuff, and it and it does so it affect, it can affect. Uh, so look so that have, that I don't have a hard time believing at all because you know physical things that are going to be physical, like if you beat the crap out of someone, it's just, you know for a three month period, yeah, that might have something to do with the body or starvation or you know depriving them of water food all these different things putting them out into the snow for you know four hours a day every day for six that you know those are physical things but i think what we're talking about is like you know why do all of isaiah's sisters just go out with black guys or you know is that genetic or is that a it could be it could be both so uh for instance let's say you have so that so so yes they were given a predisposition sorry yeah they were given a predisposition heavy on one side and then but maybe they were born they could be born and then taken out of the environment altogether so though they have a greater chance of having those uh genes be uh expressed then they they might not necessarily but even so so think about uh let's say someone who is an artist and they're always drawing and using their hands and they have great hand-eye coordination well there's um, neural pathways inside the brain that are always being lit up and it's just like a river like a river eroding on the land over time like it just gets a deeper and deeper entrenched right and so it's like that that's the same thing 
uh, on a physical level as, you know, uh, being famished for a long period of time. So then if you have a child and your child for some reason decides to pick up the pen and, and start start drawing, maybe they don't even start drawing, but maybe they, they start doing something else that requires hand-eye coordination, but they just have a knack for it simply because of the genetics of the past uh, generation. But it's also the fact that they live in a house where, you know, there's a little part of the house, it's got a little desk, yeah, with yeah. paper and pencils, and instead of staring at Barney or whatever else they could possibly be doing, they are sitting there with pencils and paper, and they can tell in their parents' voice, ooh, look at that, honey, she's doing what you do. Exactly. And, they, and the kids can go, ooh, I get it, I have this hand-eye coordination, you know, subconsciously or deep in there or whatever, they recognize what their thing is, and they just, do, you know, you like people always remember these little oddities, and it's, it, this is something that irks me. This is a little idiosyncrasy. This is a little thing about me that that I am annoyed when people take one little thing and they say, "Look at that! Isn't that weird? This happened, and then this happened. That's not weird at all. Look at two guys in a row came into the place, and they were named Earl, and that's like a rare name. Isn't that really weird? No, it isn't. Not a million, really. A million, right? Uh, and that's a bad example because sometimes you hear some that are more plausible and people think that are more mystical and it's like no a million trials of this thing have happened and mm -hmm. you didn't care about any of them except this one and it's like if you you know if you do anything a million times you're going to get that same result x number of times whatever right. it is even if it's kind of so it's not like any magical thing when these little coincidences happen a coincidence is just something that you notice right right i go in first then you go in i go in first and you go in and then you know, the day that I go in after something happens, it's just two things that happen to happen. This is, I feel like everything is just churning forward with right. its, for, for its own reason and with its own path. And sometimes things just happen in a weird, uh, a weird combination. And it just annoys me that people, you know, because there are some people, I would say a lot of women, <laughs> more than men, but I, I mean, it's just me generalizing, but I would say more women than men go into this whole, uh, you know, destiny, soulmates, all these different things that, I don't give a lot of credence to because, as I was saying earlier, like, and, and I agree with you totally that I, I don't know anything about epigenetics, but I feel like most of the time Me <laughs> it is a little bit of column A, a little bit of column B, right? If the guy yeah. has good hand-eye coordination and he was a professional illustrator and he has a kid in his house, that kid is going to have some of the same traits that are going to lead him to what led him to what he does, and there's going to be stuff hanging around and the kid's going to want to impress his dad, and the kid's going to want to be like his dad, yes, it's going to give him a much higher proclivity to do exactly what the dad does. And, and exactly. What's the percentage that's actual, right? If that kid got mailed to Siberia when he was born, is there a chance he'd turn into a writer? Yeah, of course there's a chance that he would do that because, you know, the, the, the father was like that. So, I mean, I, right. they like to isolate those things and say, what's the, what's the percentage that's nature, nurture? I don't know. But, yeah, I, I, yeah. but going back to... What is it that makes Isaiah like the type of chick he likes? There, th that's the same type of thing. I think that there are some th certain things that you're just naturally born to um, be attracted to. And right. then there's a bunch of other things that have added into that that make like that one specific chick that much more interesting to you. Even if you've never heard a word come out of her mouth. Because right. obviously it gets infinitely more complicated once you start dealing with people and then you go, oh, I really like this person after spending six months with them. Well, A, most of the people you spend six months with, you're going to like a lot more than you did before you hung out with them. So 
what does that really prove? You know what I mean? It's like the Archie Bunker thing. He doesn't like any black guys except the guy that lives next to him. He doesn't like any Puerto Rican guys except the one he knows from the grocery store. That's like, right. that's like you know, everything. And um, I think a lot of times I don't think we put enough in, enough weight into like the early stage, the, the things that happen when you're real young that they're hard to track. You can't say, uh, you know, for example, maybe you don't ever like girls that wear men's shirts and, it, and who knows why that is. Maybe it's something you don't like. Maybe it's something that you had a bad experience with a girl that you identify with as having worn shirts. Or maybe when you were six and you were sitting in your classroom, you looked out the window and you saw a girl in a man's shirt punch a guy or right. get arrested that, yeah. really violently or something. And you went, I'm making that association right now. It's burned in there and I don't want anything to do with that. Yeah. I think that's a lot of it. And I oh, think when you add those things up, you get these really weird uh, little things. Did you, you ever watch the show Three's Company from way back? No, I, I've seen I've seen like an episode here and there, but I've never. I was a big fan. I watched the reruns. It was a little before my time, but there, so it was Jack Tripper, right? He's got the two girl roommates. He had to pretend like he was gay. That was like the whole thing, so that the landlord wouldn't throw him out in the much less loose late seventies, early eighties, I guess. Right. And uh, he had a, a few different roommates. One of them was Terry. And at some point, for whatever reason, Jack grows a mustache just, you know, because that was like half the show was Jack and his roommate or his neighbor, Larry, trying to score in the 70s in the California. And uh, he grew a mustache and tr Terry went into like this weird trance where she just wanted, you know, even though she was Jack's roommate for like some, you know, long period of time prior to that, all of a sudden he's got this mustache on, bam, she's like. You know, insane lust after Jack because he's got the mustache, and that's the whole episode. He's going to shave up his mustache because Terry is in like this trance. Dude, and the that, mustache is that was a big thing back then, man. <laughs> the mustache was in in that in that era, yeah. It was, but I, I think they were trying to make more of a point. Like there are these certain triggers for certain people. Yeah, I think and, there's there's too many variables to to any one of these equations for for us to even calculate like we can calculate okay well they grew up in this environment even still like there's just too many things to factor in and uh we can just uh, look at it and assume that it all has it all has some effect and there's almost no point in even trying to figure out the patterns in it yeah you might be right because it's just too, it's too hard to say what comes from what i'm sure there are people doing it though as we speak in some type of gigantic experiment trying to pare it all down because it's useful i mean once you once you identify those things it would be useful but you're right for a couple of guys like us it's too complex uh but but i do feel like when people do that i guess my main point for bringing that up was it's so arbitrary what it is that nowadays that that brings people together like you, when you didn't have choice in certain civilizations and maybe like in india for example right now where they still do arranged marriages they stay together at a much higher rate even though they have zero choice in picking who their mate is. Yeah, and do you think that's also a bit of the societal, um, like a, a societal thing? Like, yeah, they, it's in their society to be put or forced into an arranged marriage, but it's also a part of their society to stay with that person. Absolutely, I'm sure that's a part of it. But I bet you, I bet, and I've read a little bit on this too, I bet you that they are happier, a lot of them are happier in their marriages. Now, are there guys that are out there just totally cheating their asses off because they know their wife can't go anywhere? Kind of like America in the 50s, that's probably a big part of it too. But I think giving people the opportunity to choose also takes a little something away from the gravity when it gets to marriage. Because if I can just randomly choose this person out of 
all the other possible candidates, and I just pick them, and there's no. You Dude, know, that's there's... that's daunting. It is. That's it daunting is. because it the is. choices are are, are seemingly infinite, uh, or might as well be, right? The I saw a study. This is on, like a, a side note, but totally related. Where they were talking about, you go to a grocery store and the salad dressing in the salad dressing aisle. There's like hundreds of choices. Dude, it's choice paralysis. It is choice paralysis. But then, this is the part that was interesting for me. When they had these people pick from 100 dressings and they took them back and they did the little survey on how happy they were with their choice, they were not as happy as the person that went to a lesser number of choices. And they actually identified, they came out in this particular article that I'm talking about and said they found that the, the correct number of dressings to have for peak happiness, for everyone that went in there and chose their dressing, was like six. Mm-hmm. Like a white one, a red one, something chunky, something low-fat, whatever. When you get up to the hundreds, it's almost impossible. You're going to have buyer's remorse yep. because you saw so many options. You know you can't have them all, and you've got to pick one. You're losing. Exactly. You feel like you're losing. And so that's kind of how it is now where we get to pick from anyone. You can pick kids nowadays, and, and you might even be old enough to kind of feel the same way I do. I feel like kids just have sex with anyone. Guys with guys, guys with girls, they switch back and forth. I'm not against it, but I'm just that only makes it worse because I only got to pick from 50 of the 100 available salad dressings. These people can pick from all, you know, the whole 100. Right. I think that and makes so, it even more tricky. So, yeah, dude, and it's, um, it, it's, it's a really strange and interesting phenomena because, uh, you know, humans, I think, naturally are meant to live in, like, maybe groups of upwards of 200, maybe. And so when you have so much access to so many people at once, you have that buyer's remorse. Whereas if you have like 200 people and then uh, you you're, you can know all of them, so you know which one you know is kind of the best. Even, if an, even in a smaller, uh, even in like a, a slightly bigger group, you know, it's still not as much choice. But do you not feel that it's almost as I found it's almost as much effort or stress given at the end of the day to just work on one relationship than to continually pl- roll those dice and try to find someone else. You know, at the I, end of the I day, think, it's almost- I think it's more to keep the keep the one going, and I think I think that's like my main issue with why the divorce rate is so high is because it, it it's really hard to keep going back. I think to the same one when you know there's millions of other choices. As soon as you say. You know what? Let's break up. I, I, like I think there's a lot of guys my age that feel like once they get divorced because their wife is the one that's, you know, pushing them along and saying you don't make enough money. You're starting to ball. Why are you getting so fat? You got to do. You don't do enough around the house. You're not as good as Bob. You're doing those things add up. Even if you know that makes your wife sound like a super nag. But if you took those that list of comments and spread that out over ten years, you know it's it's still even if they're not totally on you all the time. One person has said all those things to you over time, and the ones that hit the, hurt the most are the ones that are going to stay with you the most. Right. And so even if she's really nice and really supportive and, and everything's going really well, over the course of 10 years, you've got this list of like, uh, you know, really nasty, snarling smears on your every aspect of you. Right. And so when you get to that point where, uh, you know, things get a little dicey, it's very easy to say, you know what? She's done. I'm going to go marry a 25-year-old. That's yeah. what I need is a new young thing or whatever. And that's the thing. So, yeah, it seems – I feel like it maybe it would seem that way, but then then you get into that relationship and you, you run into something else and then you're like, okay, well, let me just find another one. And so you're constantly in the same – you're doing the same amount of work if you just want to put it into jewels, right? 
at the end of the day, finding <laughs> the work. And I prefer the gigawatts. Gigawatts, exactly. The the amount of gigawatts exerted in trying to find a relationship, get in deep enough to know it sucks, find a relationship, get into it deep enough to know it sucks. That work is just as much work as finding one that's like 1% above 50, like 51% good, and then just working on that one. See, but I think, so this, this was the next point I was going to make, is I think the key to the, the relationship, I think, that most people are looking for, and I do believe that people are monogamous. I do believe that that, that is the ideal situation for a person because you go through all these stages of life. You, I, For me, I found the best thing, and not just personally, but when I'm looking at people and I say, what makes that person happy? Why is that person happy? People like anchors. Like you're really good at something and then you do that for a job, that you have an anchor in that, that is satisfying. It's something that you can continually spend time with and, and work towards. It's an anchor in your life. It's something that, that and, and again, in a society like we're in right now where you have hundreds of choices of everything, that buyer's remorse comes out in every single social interaction in your life, whether you like it or not. It's a true thing, dude. Like you took a couple hours to do this this afternoon with me. We both had some some uh, decisions to make, right? We have, uh, what do they call it, opportunity cost. We could have done other things. Exactly. You could have been spanking it. You could have been playing a video game. You could have been... You know, writing your memoirs. You could have been working and you know selling that time off. Better, better time spent. Better time spent. Better time spent. Better time spent. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> I mean, and that's and, and you know what though? That's exactly what at least some portion of your mind is doing all the time. Is saying, "What are we doing now? We could be doing something better." And I think the big town, small town. When you boil it down, the main difference between living in New York and living in you know East Des Moines is that in New York, that is cranked up to ten. And you're constantly, you're more aware of salad dressings in every aisle of every aspect of your life. And you're less and less happy because you know you can't win. It's a losing proposition. Every time you pick up your phone, you text someone, you do anything, you know the opportunity cost is much bigger. When you're in East Des Moines, if Sally calls you and she wants to go stare at the corner with you, best day of your life. That's the best thing because what else, there's, yeah, there's not not many other choices, dude. It's a, it's a, um. You you just get extreme FOMO to the to the to the most ex, to the highest extent. Please FOMO, that, you got it. Yeah, there you go. Ask what FOMO. <laughs> what is FOMO? Fear of missing out. Fear of missing out. Yes. Fear of missing out. You text somebody, and then somebody else texts you, and you have two options right there in your in on in your lap. This person wants you to go do this. This person wants you to go do this. And it's New York City, and those aren't even the, the only two options. You could just walk out of the door on your own and and run into. It's just finding the path in New York City is, is yeah. It's just like you said, dude. You're you're lost in a sea of salad dressings, and you have to pick the best one always. You're always trying to pick the best one, and you can't find the. If you ever gone to a store like a. Um well, you've probably never been there. Well, maybe you have, but I don't know. Hey, Isaiah, you got to pick up the uh, – don't forget to pick up some salad dressing. And you go into like this crappy little store that doesn't have any choices. Right. They only got four types of dressing. You know you made the right choice because she's allergic to Catalina. Right. You don't like ranch. There's only one left. Italian. Same deal. Italian. Everyone likes Italian. Right. So you win. So, But, but we that FOMO – I'm glad that you said that because I've heard that before. FOMO is exactly what I think the number one problem we're having in America is because there's so many options – the internet and and all the and smartphones and all the different technologies putting so many things in your face. Facebook, 
oh my God, it's nonstop showing you better things people are doing than what you're doing. And it, it's, it's sometimes hard to plug out because of that FOMO. And it's the FOMO that makes you want to, to step away on a regular basis. I, uh, so it's like a catch-22, and it is killing marriages because it is really hard to stay married for a long time. I mean, even when you're married, I feel like most of the guys I know that have been married, I've, I've been married for, uh, there'll be 13 years in this fall. So I guess it's really only just over 12 years. And it's, man, every, it's, there's so many challenges to consistently staying with the same one. Now, when you have kids, it does kind of stack the deck into you'll stay for most of us because, you know, now you have a relationship with these kids that is really going to be messed with if you don't stay married. Oh, yeah. So it's, it's a very selfless kind of thing. But still, so many freaking guys my age, I know, they go, I'm walking away from my kids because I got to go chase that tail. I got to get That's out what of it is. I got to do it. Yeah. And I feel like the reason I feel like people really are monogamous deep down, it, not just in this time, but I think for all times, is because it is – those anchors that we search for in life, that clarity of mind, whatever the, I'm sure there was a caveman society that the next generation had this FOMO epidemic happening to them and they were just untethered. And you just, when you don't, when you're untethered, it's really scary because this FOMO becomes a much bigger force. Oh. When you're, when you're like, I know I work at the steel mill, I'm going to work here. Uh, Sally's my wife. I got my six kids. I'm not going anywhere because I'm super tied in so many ways to where I'm at. You don't even think about the, the FOMO. Yeah, the, but, then, but now we're, we, we're so exposed, like you said, through Facebook. We're exposed to all the other options, and we always have that feeling like, fuck, we should be doing something bigger and better. We're trying to be convinced. Feeling. Yeah, it's a p- terrible feeling. But dude, yeah, I have uh, – you might have heard – I, I, I don't know. You might have heard uh, – uh, I do a, a string of jokes about Facebook, and um, – I might have heard him. What are your Facebook shows? So I start out by saying, you know, I just got back from a long bicycle tour, and uh, I did it so that I can be the coolest fucking person on my uh, social highlight reel. <laughs> and then people are like, what? And I'm like, Facebook. That's all it is. It's just a highlight reel. <laughs> I was like, that's, and I'm like, you think true. Cindy? You think Cindy's eating sushi and going skydiving every day? Nah, man, that's the only thing she did all last year. She just keeps reposting that shit. (laughs) Right. Yeah, no, it's so freaking true, man. And there's four people at any given time eating sushi at this really good sushi place on your wall. And you're just like, wow, I haven't had sushi in a year. And they're like, look at me. I'm I'm so cultured and I'm doing so much. There's a highlight reel, dude. People are cherry picking cool events out of their life. They're all losers. It's tough. I do these, uh, you you know, I mean, there's so many different aspects to it on my wall. I have like a million open micers because I like to see what people are doing. Uh, some people treat Facebook like Twitter yeah, and they just are posting up their little non sequiturs. And I like those guys. I got probably about 10 of those guys. Yeah, I would love that. Wall. I'm so sick of my Facebook feed is nothing but fucking videos and like no one's posting their own shit. It's just like I found this video somewhere and they post it. Oh my God. My brother-in-law, when I deal with the guy, you can't talk to him for more than five. My little brother too. You cannot deal with him for more than five minutes without them saying, check this out. Ah. Check this out. They're like my they're per, my personal life curator. They're like on little DJs. Electronic media. Yeah. Check this out. Check this out. Did you see this one? Did you see this one? How about this? Oh, you Dude, know what that reminds me of? YouTube like, DJs. Dude. They're YouTube DJs. YouTube DJs. <laughs> I mean, and you know what? It's not just them. I'm I'm just saying those are the two guys that I think of when I think of that. 
And you know what? A lot of times they show it to me, and I'm like, that's wicked funny. Mm -hmm. Of course. They're but good like, DJs, man. <laughs> but I feel like when I'm like, all right, catch you later. I'm, I, I'm going on to the next thing. You're going on to the next thing. I feel like I'm getting in my car and maybe putting on some tunes, and I feel like they're just there searching for the next YouTube thing. Not for me, but for like the next person that's going to be like, hey, how are you doing? And they're like, check this you out. See this? <laughs> check it out. You see this? I want And everyone wants to beat everyone to the punch, too. Like when someone dies today, it's comical to me. Where people that don't give a shit, like who's the person that just died today? Give me someone that just died today. Dude, famous. I don't know, but everyone's going to be just jumping on. No, there was someone because my wife said it to me and I was like, really? Like fucking who? I'm not saying who cares. That's callous. I'm saying, do you really care that much? And what? It's, it's, no, 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 no. You just want to tell news. somebody. You want to be the person to give the news. <laughs> yeah. Dude, okay. There's a really strange phenomenon. Have you ever been outside of a restaurant or a store, right? And you went up and you checked the door and it's locked, and it says closed on it, right? And then you're standing by your car, or you're standing closed, and then another patron that you've never met, you've never spoken to in your entire life, gets out of their car, and they're approaching the restaurant. Do you let them try the door, or do you go, hey, buddy, they're closed? It depends. Dude. This is where my social anxiety comes in. But I know what I'm supposed to say is, hey, it's closed, I just checked. I feel it's the other way around. So I don't want to. I don't want to be. The door that means that that I... person's first experience with you is you giving them negative news. They're going to find out the same way you did. So phrase it. Hey, they're going to be open in like 10 minutes. Yeah, if you, if, exactly. If you want to do that, exactly. That's a way around it. Or you just let them find out on their own. You don't got to be – look, there's a sign there. It's telling everyone why take it upon yourself to give out negative news to somebody. Do people love shelling that shit out? There's something about it, dude. There's something about people just love – like have you ever had something good going on in your life? And you tell someone about it, and the first thing they do, like, oh, I just got this new car. Ah, I bet the payments are really killing you, huh? Oh, those, like, there's people like that out there. Oh, yeah, my, it, my father's third wife was, she could tend to be on the negative side, which was difficult because everything went through. You know, she'd be like, oh, this girl that went to high school with me just died in a fiery car wreck last week. Okay. Why does it always have to happen to me? You know, all this bad stuff. Because it was her friend. Like, all right, I think it was worse what happened to her, but. Well, yeah, you're right. You're the one that's to go to this funeral now. What a yeah. bummer. What a bummer. <laughs> like they dude, that's the thing. Like it's so it's so strange when somebody passes uh when like a, a famous person passes, everyone in there they're just jumping on that fucking pain train, dude, that wagon. That wagon's rolling through town. Do you think it's more that or do you think it's they just want to break news? Because I feel like it's more I think they everyone wants to to show that it's an easy it's an easy status. Oh, Robin Williams, he I grew up with Jumanji and Miss Doubtfire. Oh, it means so much to me. It's like yeah. Don't so don't now, get me wrong, the guy deserves all the love in the world, but what does he care? He's dead. So let me ask you this. What, have you ever done one of those? You must have at some point never posted about someone dead. Never. No one died that was famous that you were like this was my guy because I mean everyone at least does that. No. They'll be like, "Oh, that's so stupid. I don't care about Mr. Rogers or the guy that played Big Bird or Colonel Sanders. But when Louis C.K. dies, I don't know. I might say Listen, something Robin to identify. A, Robin Williams was a huge influence in my life. I saw him early on uh, live. He actually used to hang out with my grandfather. Uh, the two of them were, were semi, I guess, I don't know. You can probably call them acquaintances. My, no shit. In, in, in L.A. when my uh, grandfather was alive. And, uh, you know, I met him and I spoke with him and all this stuff. And... Again, you know, I had the same connection as far as like all the different movies I grew up with. Being someone who wanted to do comedy and and want, was always someone trying to be funny from like a very early age. Like, yeah, he was extremely influential. But uh, I don't want 
to be like there's 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 I find nothing redeeming about getting on that pain train, that wagon rolling through town and just just tossing my my thing in there. Like what's it what's it doing? But so I'm not saying that I got in on the pain train, but I feel like I did. Uh, I, I don't know. I, I guess maybe I can't describe what it was, but I, I remember when he did die, I did post something. It, it was not like the day of, right. you know, it was, but it was, you know, it was the week he died. I didn't post it like yesterday. It was right. like the week he died. I saw something. I, I think it was a repost of someone else's thing. And I might've added something like, uh, you know, that was uh, who knew how sad he really was or whatever, you know, that that's sad that this guy was a comedian that you just think is super funny and, and happy all the time. And, you know, suicidal for like many years, and finally, yeah, man, it's it's a, it's a really sad thing. You have somebody who is the the light in so many people's lives, but who is the light in his life? You know, like he gives, and it's tough. We can never we can never know, you know, what these people are thinking. But you know, one hundred percent, like you know, when somebody dies and they're like, oh, where it's uh, so surprising they die. It's like no, that's like the most unsurprising thing in the universe. Like well, when they die died. early, yeah, I mean, people always say, oh, my God, it's so shocking. What a, I don't yeah, know. I mean, never he's going to die man. at some point. He's 100% 60. of everyone ever dies. Well, like, but the kid, you know, like the Batman uh, kid there, um, the actor, Heath Ledger. Right. When he died, that was surprising, I think, because, you know, he was in this hit movie and he's really young. Yeah. He wasn't going to die. I don't think people knew about his drug abuse. But you're right. I hear you. People say things that are just so foolish. That's just people's reaction in the in the face of... Something they see as tragic is just these trite. Yeah, reactions. you're right. You're right. And you know what? Speaking of movies, you you mentioned at at some point that you had a movie script, an idea that you you've been oh, yeah. passing around. So this is something like just because I I feel like that would be if I had if I could have this magic power and I could do anything I want, I would write a really funny movie. Because, you know, I mean, I, I grew up watching movies. I watched a billion movies. I just wanted to go see Star Wars today. You see that? I'm not lying. I watch movies. <laughs> I'm not lying. <laughs> Approve and, it. Here's my ticket stub. And I think for me, I, I like movies that um, that are, like, funny without, like, having some big purpose or without making some type of point. If a movie has, like, a really good plot, I feel like a lot of times, you know, the, you, you have to temper the funny to serve the plot so that, you know, it goes in that linear fashion and goes A to Z on time. Whereas I'll forgive a movie that's got less of a plot if it's more about serving just like the nonstop. Like, for example, the difference between uh, Tommy Boy and Step Brothers. Tommy Boy is a bad example because it didn't do a whole lot to serve a plot. It did have a plot, though. So there are those points in the movie that are like totally bridging you to get to the next piece. You just can't have Spade and and, uh, Chris Farley just being knuckleheads the whole time because they're, they're getting somewhere. They got something going. So maybe it's somewhere in that avenue. Whereas Step Brothers, clearly that movie was made up as it was going along just to, you know, put as much funny, stupid stuff in there as possible. Did you see both those movies? Yeah. Right. So this is this is actually something – it's interesting that you're, you're talking about this uh, because I've had very similar thought cycles in the, in the same vein as what you're talking about. So many people will go and see a movie and uh, – give their their rating or their critique or judgment on the movie based off of a very um i don't I, honestly i don't know what they are basing their criteria off of so somebody will see a movie and they'll 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 think they'll critique it 
like in some kind of action movie where the, the, the writer, the director, everyone said, look, we're just fucking making a balls to the wall action flick. And then somebody goes in there and they're like, well, it lacks substance and all this kind of stuff. It's like, well, you're, first of all, you're grading an orange on the scale of, of a fucking tomato. Like it doesn't make any sense. Yeah, exactly. It doesn't make any sense. So I, I really love to go into a movie and uh, look at it for what whoever made it, what they were trying to do. So for instance... The, the guys who made uh, uh, Step Brothers, you know, they're trying to make this movie that's just, it's basically just carried by these two powerhouse characters, and that's, everything else will just fall into place. Yes, you have this kind of plot that moves around and whatnot, but essentially you just throw these two guys into all those scenes, and it's going to be gold, right? But that was, that was what they were trying to do. Like, they didn't say they were trying to come up with the next Capote, it was uh, these right. two fucking guys. Like, that's what they were trying to do. Dude, have you ever seen the movie um, Crank with Jason Statham? Uh, I don't think that I have. I'm not a big Jason Statham. I know of the movie. I believe that's the one where it's like speed, where if he is it if he stops running or if he doesn't punch a guy every, like, 60 seconds, he explodes. <laughs> See, that's, like that. that's such a funny way. <laughs> if he doesn't punch, he has. Basically, it's exactly what it is. In the very first, like, minute of the film, he gets injected with some poison. And the poison is kept at bay, at bay by adrenaline. He, fi- he finds out very quickly that when he's got adrenaline pumping through his system, uh, he's, he's not going to die, right? So the entire movie is him trying to keep his adrenaline running at full blast while trying to find the people that killed or, or put it in him. And he's trying to like get – dude, it's just – again, these guys were like, yo, we're making an action movie and the, the plot – and everything else is just don't even worry about that. That's to the wayside. What you need to know is that if this guy stops being a badass, he will die. <laughs> That's and so right. So it's easy to service that. And as long as people go in with the right impression, if people come out and they're like, I didn't really like the way the story was. Like, it's like whatever well, happened to his brother in law? You're an idiot in the beginning, and then you never heard from him. <laughs> no shit. That's not the He's point. Like, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So so I for me the funniest movies serve the comedy first and the plot is like you got to have a plot like uh like dirty work and so it's funny i'm a big norm mcdonald fan i love the guy i think he's just so he's very underrated dude he is and so i remember when i saw dirty work that's probably when this came up uh, for me originally is uh, the the name that i've had in my head for like 10 years maybe it's probably not since that movie came out because that movie's probably older but the name is dirty cops and this is what i'm thinking it's a rambling it's a movie that goes from place to place. There's something that happens in the beginning. My thinking is that there's a cop who is, you know, kind of uh, abusing his authority in some way. It'll have to be funny. Like, I, I don't want it to be serious at all. I want the things that the cops are doing to be humorous cop abuses of power. I don't want it to literally be, you know, pounding someone over. But it'll be like, I, I've got a million little scenarios for all the things the cops are doing. And so he is a cop that is abusing his power. He gets in trouble, and in the midst of this, like a friend of his, maybe like his girlfriend works at the courthouse, or maybe his girlfriend is the daughter of like the judge in the area, something like that. He gets wind that they're going to do this big, huge, like we're coming down on all the dirty cops, like ASAP, and all these, and we're going to make examples of you. So this person tells him, hey, it's not just you, it's A, B, C, D, and there are other people from. Uh, you know, the local areas. And this is going to be one of those movies where I got to get in my car and drive and go find these people, introduce them, get them into my thing, and we're going to fix this problem, whatever it is. Right. So my thinking is 
that the 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 judge like you know this happens on Friday on Monday the, or maybe in two weeks whatever I, like I said that's not the important part the the, the comedy is there first the plot is just going to be like a loose like a loop like that piece of twine that you put on like a pork when you stuff it oh baby loose, it's, it's loose holding thing. it's holding it together but we're going to cut it away thinnest. when it, when things get hot we're going to cut that away entirely. It's got no use, but you do need to have the twine in the beginning, or else people don't have any interest. Yeah, they don't. Otherwise, it's just gonna blob a pork with like spinach rubbed on it. You need the twine. Look, to, man, I need some structure here. I need to you need, exactly. You need some structure. You need some presentation. So he goes from place to place to get these other dirty cops, and you get to see them each doing their own thing. So my in my mind, right at this moment, because these are the guys that I'm seeing out there. I'm seeing like maybe the first guy is like um, it, it can't be like a big comedian. It's got to be like a. Um, you know who would be a good fit would be like a Luke Wilson. Luke Wilson is the first guy because these the, the structure, the, the way that you normally go with these, as you know, the formula, and I'm, I'm big on formula because the stuff that has worked, it's always formulaic. People say, no, that's the, the same crap. No. People that do their own thing, it's so much harder to hit. The formula takes a lot of guesswork out and it takes a lot of the noise out. It just lets oh, you yeah. go right just through plug this. In, just plug in the, the – the, the... It lets people start associating right off. They're like, I know what this is. I liked this before. I'm going to like this. Mm-hmm. So it's like a Luke Wilson. I'm just throwing him in as like a placebo. But he can't be too good because as we meet the dirty cops, their offenses are going to be more and more egregious. So right. we're going to start with something light. Then like the first town he goes to where he's going to be like, hey, we've got to figure out a way to get our name off this list or something is like a Danny McBride or like a – uh, Galifianakis, maybe, or, or maybe, or maybe those are the guys at the end because they're the ones that are going to be doing like the super over the top rap. Maybe there's like a a Will Ferrell is one of the first guys, or like a, uh, you know, maybe like a Norm Macdonald might be a good. Op- so the, the the framework of the movie is he's in trouble, he's a dirty cop, he's going to go get these other dirty cops at some point in the movie, and you can probably already see this coming because well, once I say it, you'd be like, yeah, because it's totally tropey, is that. The connection that he's got at the courthouse finds out, oh, my God, the judge is actually the bad guy, and he's going to pin all the stuff on you guys. And now they're like, oh, my God, we have a chance to redeem ourselves. Yes, we've been dirty cops, but if we get together and fix this, now we're good cops, right? We, and we've gotten ourselves out of trouble. Right. So the, the, the meat of the movie is him going from place to place, finding these other dirty cops, and then they band together and go wherever they're going to go to catch the bad guy. Maybe it's like 100 pounds of Coke or hookers human trafficking can be kind of funny right like, so, so maybe they all have offenses but they're they're not really like they assume they're on some list for because they're quote-unquote dirty cops where one of them may he's like oh, i run stop signs all the time you know well it's, no i'm thinking it's more like abuse of power stuff that's that's the he gets hot dogs whenever he wants he's just like hey exactly. i'm a cop give me a hot dog right exactly he like but, pushes the hot dog guy around or he's got like an illegal alien like as his house servant because he's you know he can hold it over the guy's an illegal alien or something exactly which is all stuff that's that's more or less kind of minor and overlooked but at the end it's really the cop or not the cop the judge is like doing some big shit like the he he's kingpin of some huge shit it's got to okay. be like foolish like a hundred pounds of heroin is coming into miami or human trafficking over the border or like a cargo ship or, you know, sometimes the funniest selling, thing... He's selling nuclear arms. Nuclear I was going to say, the funniest thing is when you take something from a serious cop thing and you make that the thing that they're doing. Like, oh my God, he's doing the same thing that the guy in Breaking Bad was doing. Right. But it's absurd because it's like the whole thing was thrown together in Yeah, he's trading, he's trading meth to the Cubans for, a, a nu- for nuclear warheads. Exactly. That he'll then sell, sell to the Mexicans or, or to, the, to, the, to the Muslims or something. Then they come in 
they save the day. You know, they're inept cops that are. And bad they can't cops, do it on they, purpose. Like they have to just half at like backwards and then be like they have all the confidence in the world, but they didn't mean to do it. Something. All right. So something happens. I mean, I feel like they need to like culminate and get together and come down to Miami. But yeah, then maybe it's like it wasn't their cop skill because that's not funny when cops are like, you know, remember our training. We actually let's go arrest the perps. You're right. It has to be like some type of stumbling thing that just happened to get it busted. Maybe. Oh, you know what? I, I, this is another through line that I was thinking is that maybe the first guy, Luke Wilson, his brother is also a cop in town, but he's like the straight, narrow, the, the straight as a narrow guy. And they enlist like his help or some other real cop as like their, uh, you know, the guy that's going to help them. And he, the he's the one that pretty much does everything, but they take all the credit. They take all the credit. Yeah. Or oh. something happens that showcases his, uh, you know, limitations or downside as well. You know, everyone learns something, but it's it, like I said, the whole thing has to serve the comedy. And I think it's easy to do when you're constantly switching locations and adding people into the mix. It's yeah, like a yeah, quick, yeah. easy way to just boil it up. It really does. It and, and yeah, so it's it makes it easier to focus on the situational aspects of it than like the overall plot, which again is something that is formulaic. So you don't want them thinking too much about the plot. Let it just be formulaic. Who gives a shit? It's all about the uh, details, the details, the small things, the the thing, the, the uh, putting a certain character uh, in a certain situation uh, that you know you know that uh, yeah yeah small things details. What is, I mean, rabble, I, you know, rabble, rabble. I feel like it could easily be the funniest movie of all time without any exaggeration on my part, just based on my, my little, I have not actually put a pen to paper on it at all, but I've been talking about it for years. So <laughs> for like years a, I've been spitballing this and I yeah. think it's, so, and you would just call it Dirty Cops? It's going to be called Dirty Cops, like that's the thing. And it's going to have like four or five recognizable faces as the dirty cops in their location. So maybe like it starts in Miami because that's where the first guy was. Then it goes to Atlanta. Then he's going to drive to Texas. There's like a big scene between Georgia and Texas and they find something out. Maybe there's another dirty cop they didn't even know about. And the joke is that they're so pervasive. You don't even have to know the guys. You just stop in a town and you can find the dirty cop. Like, Vince, oh, Vaughn. Everyone knows. Vince Vaughn would make an awesome one of my dirty cops, you know? Exactly. Everyone knows the guy, old Sheriff Buckheimer. Has been, been uh, uh, paying, ma- ma- making the uh, fucking a. It's been making the the five and dime. It's <laughs> been making the five and dime pay safety for the last thirty years. Come on. I mean, because it, it, and I, I would like it if this would be like the grand stroke to this. Besides being the funniest movie of all time, it would make it would, it would have super low key social commentary because the abuses that these guys would do. I would like they'd be like ripped from the headlines things where you can't even believe it, and then you just put them in a funny context so that people wouldn't believe it. They'd be like, "This is so ridiculous." Will Ferrell actually had four young kids in a corn, whatever. Something like I said, something that people actually did. It'd have to be cop offenses. I bet if you started googling them, because I've done this in the past, you see stuff and you're like, "What the hell?" So I've done I've done research. These are well, yeah, but I I never found like I don't think I found the one where I was like. I, I did actually put pen to paper on it a while back, but um, I don't know. Maybe it's kind of morphed into something more specific for me. I, I think it could be a funny concept, though. And so if I ever write a screenplay, that is going to be it. It's going to be Dirty Cops. Dude, I like that. I really like it. I really like the spitball sec- – uh, I really like – you know what we should do is that um, if ever uh, – not if ever, when you do come back 
to be on the podcast, which I don't see why you wouldn't just be back again uh, next week, you know, like over and over again. Who cares? It would be a fun thing to touch base on that script itself. And if ever a new idea or anything pops up or, or something or another detail that could be added, it'd be really fun to watch that sort of get fleshed out over a period of time. Yeah, no, I definitely look forward to bringing up Dirty Cops back on the uh, back on the podcast. I'll give you an update. Yeah, I want to hear. Sure. I want to hear the updates of Dirty Cops. <laughs> I fucking love it. And now for your update on. I know everyone's been waiting. The update on Dirty Cops. <laughs> so our first. Dude, I love it, dude. Fuck yeah, dude. So how are you? How are you feeling about your your first podcast experience? How do you? I feel good. I wish you know it could have been a little tighter. I wanted us to be kind of moving in a certain direction, but I, you know, I, it also was kind of very, uh, spontaneous. So I like that aspect of it. I think, I think we were pretty smooth. Yeah, it was really smooth. I, I, I would say this is, uh, yeah, really smooth and there was never a really downtime. And, uh, so that's the thing. Yeah. Like we just kind of let it go where it goes and it's always going to go in a, an interesting, if we're my, what I only really care about is if I'm having an entertaining conversation with somebody and I just hope or the idea is that uh, um, there are other people that would find the conversation entertaining as well. But first and foremost, I don't want to sit here and have a conversation that's just for other people to find interesting and not me. Like, that's, there, what's the fun in that? I'm doing this because I'm having fun doing it. Like, I love talking to people. So, um, dude, this was, yeah, this is absolutely great. And anything that maybe we, any points or anything that we had um, put down and didn't necessarily touch on. I mean, there's all the time in the, in the fucking world. We, there's no shortage of, of, uh, podcasts, you know, we can just keep going. Well, excellent, man. So it, it sounds like we're kind of doing the, are we wrapping it up? Wrapping yeah. I'm kind of picking up the tone and the diction of a man who's looking to wrap something up. And I think I feel good about what we touched on. We got, there was some meat in there. I want to, the, there was only two things I want to talk about and we hit both of them. And, uh, you know, you're never going to be exactly as, uh, lucid on a topic as you'd like when you're doing a podcast for the first time i learned that within this last hour of my life so. <laughs> i learned that but i, but I think I suspected, that. I suspected that going in so hell yeah i'm Dude, not i'm not gonna hold that against myself it was a fucking perfect podcast and like you said we we touched on on a number of things and um you know your vernacular always it, it's it's it never ceases to surprise me my vernacular see i use the word i use a you, good word you <laughs> You use diction, I use vernacular. You hear that? I like uh, it. You see what I did there? All right, so I'll be over at your house in about 30 minutes. You can pat my back. That'd be great. You need to use the word vernacular if you want to get this link to the uh, NPR family podcast. So that was very clever Hello, of you. I'm Chad Rod, and I'm Robert Krolowicz. Oh, God, dude. I can't. Those no, are, come on. Okay, it's look, good stuff. Sometimes they do good stuff. They do good stuff. I've listened to, like, I want to say most of them. Uh, there's only like a handful I haven't listened to. Uh, yeah, it's it's great fucking listening. Did it's, you ever listen so to the the spinoff one off of This American Life? Uh, that one about the guy uh, cereal is what it was called. No, no, dude, my sister fucking hounded me to watch that shit, and I never did. But it was kind of interesting. It was kind of interesting. I, at the end, you know, I mean, I don't want to give it away. I, I guess you thought that maybe. I mean, it's about a real guy. Does the dog die? Does the dog die? Oh, no. he he was a ghost the whole time. That's it. Well, the, the kid was in jail. Like, he really is in jail for all this time. And when they start bringing it up, she immediately brings up all these things. She's like, I think they're just railroading a, a Muslim dude to, <laughs> to, because the cops couldn't figure it out. You know, And you know me. I'm already 
looking at the cops suspiciously. And, um, you know, it was interesting, I thought. But it was very NPR-ish. I mean, yeah. I'll have to oh, listen to it. Like, they're very entertaining. Like they, it's information given in a very entertaining way. I, um, you know, the reason I, I could say even do stand-up or any of that kind of stuff is because I some of the most memorable times in my life were when I had family around and everyone was talking and telling stories and just that the laughter I got from that moment from those moments. So having that kind of candid just conversation, I'm just, I love to just sit around and fucking talk, dude. It's it's so great and um, whether it's funny or inspiring or educational, it's just I, I I love it. I love it. It's a different thing, though, isn't it? Going up on stage and trying to make people you don't know laugh. Oh yeah, it's completely different. It's it's one hundred percent different. Yeah, it's um, not even like it's not even like an extension of the one thing or whatever. It's like totally no, different. It's totally different. But yeah, I mean, there's and um, you know, uh, if you want to be fun, if you like being funny, there's a million different ways to be funny. You can write. You can um, act, and you can do stand-up. You can do something like we're doing, do monologues. Like, there's always there's something you can do. But um, uh, yeah, dude, being funny is just a, a funny thing. I don't fucking know. Huh. <laughs> All right. All right. On that cheesy fucking bullshit, guys. Everyone who's listening, it's been what? It's probably been like two, three months since the last podcast, but. Um, Again, I never once stated that w- the frequency at which I would release them. Sometimes I release two or three a week. And sometimes I don't. So that's that. There's a podcast. There is or there's not. That's it. All right, guys. Thank you. Hey, Isaiah. Thanks a lot, man. Have a yes, good night. Please say say goodbye to everyone. And uh, Looking forward to the next one. He will be everyone Greg McGinnis. Thank you. <laughs> thanks.